Yes, hello, I am James Rowlands, and as always, I'm joined by... Dan White. And today it's a WNR 259. It's ridiculous. Yes, after all this time, we're bringing it back. Dan, are you excited for today's show? I am excited, yeah. I do love the ridiculous moments that wrestling promotions have to offer. Right, Dan, this is what it's about. We're going to have a bit of fun, but we start off with the alternate intro. Picture yourself in a boat on the river with tangerine trees and marmalade skies. Somebody calls you, you answer quite slowly. A girl with kaleidoscope eyes. Cellophane flowers of yellow and green towering over your head. Look for the girl and she's gone. It's Lucy in the sky with diamonds. Lucy in the sky with diamonds. Lucy... In the sky with diamonds. Ah. Yes, and of course, we all know that is Elton John, but that is all about drugs. And we'll be taking a trip today by looking at the most ridiculous moments. But now the intro. Well, welcome to the show and not on this, but today we find 10 of the stupidest, silliest and of course, downright ridiculous. But let's start with the top 10 last time. Yeah, so we did it at WNR and it was 110 and uh, the old 10 first up was the Jeff Hardy accidents when he was getting hit uh, with the car and the fireworks. We weren't sure what was going on. It was just stupid at the time. Yes, and we found out it was Matt. We found out Matt Hardy was it in the end. Yeah. Yes, up next is BWO and it's uh, the Blue Meanie and kind of him and JBL's. Yeah. like It was during a Battle Royal on ECW, I believe, when JBL took a pot shot at uh, Blue Meanie. Which resulted in the Blue Meanie getting a victory over JBL. Yeah, I mean, and that is ridiculous when you think about him beating the former WWE champion. Speaking of beating WWE champions, where K-Fed was up next, getting a victory against John Cena, which was incredibly ridiculous. And then one of our personal favourites, and we always pay reference to it any time we see something on a pole match, and that is... Judy Bagwell on a pole match. But it wasn't Judy Bagwell on a pole. It was Judy Bagwell hoisted up on a pallet on a forklift exactly. truck. Exactly. On a forklift, just how big she was. And then we had the concrete crypt match where Paul Bearer was <laughs> killed, basically, by The Undertaker in a match against the Dudleys. Yes, and then we had the Doomsday Cage, which is Macho Man and Hogan versus the whole... Oh, my God. And we're going to get on to that very, very soon as well, the Dungeon of Doom. And then we had the Kennel from Hell match, Al Snow and Big Boss Man in a cage in a Hell in a Cell with the dogs around the ring. Awful, awful match. And then we had the Shockmaster kind of making his uh, huge announcement wearing a big jazzled Stormtrooper helmet or Darth Vader helmet. Comes in, trips over the fucking bit of wall that he breaks through. Helmet comes off completely revealing who he is. Yeah, you can kind of see the people there just trying to keep themselves composed, but... Yeah. It didn't work out one of the biggest, uh, most ridiculous moments of all time. But then we had Butterbean knocking out Bart Gunn at WrestleMania 15 in about 30 seconds. One of my favourite moments of all time, actually. Uh, and at number one, it was RoboCop. <laughs> <laughs> say again? RoboCop? Yes, James. <laughs> I, I, I didn't stutter. I didn't misread i didn't misremember it was robocop uh robocop coming out to say sting and helping him out against the four horsemen but now 149 episodes later we get a new top 10 and let's see if we can beat the 10 for last time we start off number 10 wsw the gift that keeps on giving 
Well, inside the Dungeon of Doom, and it's Kevin Sullivan on Wrestling's Wackiest Group. Yeah. In summer of 1995, one year before the emergence of the NWO, WSW was stuck in a seemingly inescapable limbo. The era of Ric Flair's thrilling rivalries against Vader Sting and Ricky Steamboat was in the rearview mirror. Hulk Hogan had arrived one year prior, but he wasn't being accepted by Atlanta's crowds with the same maniacal frenzy that had stirred up W fans in the 80s. Well, the lead producer of WCW at the time, Kevin Sullivan, a Boston-bred veteran brawler, needed to come up with something. He needed to do it fast. And what he came up with might be the single most narrative that has ever unfolded in one of the sports entertainment organisations. The Dungeon of Doom. (laughs) A country of cartoonish villains that (laughs) assembled in a haunted fortress. The dungeon grew up and grew to amass no fewer than 20 individual members, each more ridiculous than the next. Watching a group's television segments today is a surreal experience. plays like a B-movie out of the mind of, of Lord Kaufman. There were bizarre sci-fi elements like teleportation, Hogan's turn to the dark side long before going Hollywood, and even the first on-screen appearance of The Big Show. With the rise of YouTube, the group's run had developed a cult following thanks to its cheap production values and endless quotable lines like, It's not hot. <laughs> no. See, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of developed because it's, man's not hot. Yeah. What is Hogan's reaction, putting his hand in it and going, Ah, it's not hot. <laughs> well, fascinated by the macabre world of the Dungeon of Doom and the, the notion... That existence overlapped with the intense realism of the NWO. Well, WWEclassics.com sat down with Kevin Sullivan, the Dungeons Taskmaster, to find out what made the group tick and why it ever happened at all. So, the Taskmaster, or Kevin Sullivan. Yeah, and it's WWEclassics.com. And where did the idea for the Dungeon of Doom come from? Well, to me, it was tongue-in-cheek. The reason why I did it was at the time I needed to get Hulk Hogan to trust me. I saw quite early that the clientele and fan base had changed and Hogan couldn't fit into that style of wrestling at the time with the other guys who could really move in WCW. I wanted Hogan to feel comfortable with me. I asked myself, what would Vince do? Well, was the Dungeon of Doom your way of recreating Hulkamania in WCW? Well, Hogan had wrestled these really big characters like Zeus and Big Boss Man, so I thought it would be easy for him to wrestle people he was comfortable with End up ripping his shirt off, standing in the middle of the ring and posing. Well, was the group only going to be filled with Hogan's previous advocacies from the start? Well, I was going to have the Giant, who had never wrestled before, wrestle Hogan. I was trying to figure out a way of putting an impact in this thing. We did these vignettes where it said it was etched in stone and the Giant came through the wall. I kept daring Hogan to come to my lair. Well, with the fan base of WWE changing, was the Dungeon of Doom a last-ditch effort to save Hogan's status as WWE's top hero? It was a means to an end. I knew Hogan was being booed. I knew when I saw the NWO, it was the best chance anybody had to turn Hogan. I said, you got to trust me, and he did. I agreed with Satchel Page. Don't look back, something may be gaining on you. You can't change the past. The end justified the means. So in that way... It worked. So it was your idea for Hogan to go Hollywood and join the NWO and the Dungeon of Doom was your way of convincing him? When Hogan joined the NWO, he stayed at my house because people were trying to talk him out of it. I wouldn't let him leave my sight. I drove him to the arena right before the run-in at Bash at the Beach 96. That really was the cherry on top because I had Nash, Hall and the kid. When Hogan joined, it looked like WWE against WCW. But to get Hogan to turn, I needed to get his trust. 
Well, where was the Dungeon Doom set built and where did you shoot these crazy vignettes? The set was built in Tampa at the place where they shot local commercials. There were for a total of five days because we were wrestling at Universal Studios at the time and coming back over at night and shooting in Tampa. We had about ten vignettes in the can before the giant broke out of the wall and I didn't need the set anymore. We could just do the interviews anywhere. I tried to take it as far as I could because on the left-hand side I was doing a best of seven series with Eddie Guerrero and Dean Malenko. Well, when you look back at the Dungeon of Doom today, does it seem too over-the-top and wacky? Absolutely. That was the goal. Well, do you have any regrets of how the Dungeon of Doom period unfolded? Well, a lot of people say the Dungeon of Doom was horrible. It might have been tongue-in-cheek, but on Nitro against the Four Horsemen we did a 4.4 rating. WWE fans who tuned in to see those characters, whether it was John Tenter, a.k.a. Earthquake, or The Shark, Big Boss Man as Bubba Ray Rogers, or Jimmy Hart. Okay, so let's have a look at the members of the Dungeon of Doom. Start off with The Master. Well, the first member was a dun- in the Dungeon of Doom wasn't Kevin Sullivan, it was The Master. Sitting on a throne in the dungeon as if he was some kind of demonic king, The Master called for Sullivan to come find him and transformed him into the Taskmaster. He was portrayed by King Curtis Arkea, a legendary journeyman and a former World Tag Team Champion alongside Hall of Famer Baron Mike Sikaluna. He and Sullivan had previously worked together in championship wrestling from Florida Territory, where Sullivan created the Army of Darkness, a predecessor to the Dark. Well, Kevin Sullivan said, one of the few wrestling videos ever uh, I bought was with Mark Lewin, the purple hazing from the ocean. We did it on a beach in Florida, and Curtis narrated over it. King Curtis was one of the top ten talkers of all time. He was an orator from UCLA. He was a smart man, was so eerie looking, with a head that looked like his brains just sitting out there, and was 450 pounds. He looked like Jabba the Hutt. Uh, also, Kamala, before arriving in WWE to engage in heated rivalries with Jake the Snake Roberts and The Undertaker, Kamala perfected his craft in Memphis, Mid-South and the Texas-based world-class championship wrestling. After nearly a decade of performing for Mr. McMahon, the Ugandan giant had a brief spell in WCW where he appeared exclusively as a member of the Dungeon of Doom. And this is Taskmaster's take. Kamala was a guy that had wrestled Hogan in the past in WWE. I knew Hogan was, I knew it wasn't going to be a long run for Kamala, so I put him in there. I'm not sure if it was a six-month contract or a night-by-night deal, but when his contract was up, it was not renegotiated. He was impressive and worked for Hulk. I chose him because he was one that Hulk really wanted. Hulk never really bulked at any of them. The Shark. One of Hulk Hogan's most dangerous adversaries, Earthquake experienced stardom as both a despised villain and a lauded hero during his time in WWE. In 92, he and Typhoon defeated the detestable Money Inc. to win the World Tag Team Championships. After WWE, the former sumo champion landed in WCW where his tenure was marked by a string of bizarre personas, including an earthquake reboot called The Avalanche, Dungeon of Doom's The Shark, and eventually just his given name, John Tent. John Tenter. Hogan had this expression, I just rode the great white shark on Venice Beach. So John Tenter became the shark from the interviews where Hogan would talk about beating up sharks. Everybody knew he was part of the natural disasters and that wasn't much I could do. I could have called him anything but fans would still know who he was because there's so much exposure in WWE. John was a wonderful guy. He was happy to be in his position because he thought he was going to have another run with Hogan but it never really transpired because Hogan started to turn. Zodiac. Brutus Beefcake was a veteran of the squared circle by the time he arrived in WCW in 94. Hulk Hogan's best friend never seemed to be able to settle on a persona in the Turner-owned organisation. First, he was referred to as Brother Brutie, 
Then became the butcher, the man with no name, the booty man, the disciple. It's a wonder the former barber was never called the candlestick maker. In the dungeon of doom, he was Zodiac, a face-painted wildman who shouted only yes and no. Still, Zodiac was a far cry from Daniel Bryan. Taskmaster's tape, Brutus Beefcake was successful as Brutus Beefcake. Without being Brutus, anything else was hard for him. So he was a friend of Hogan, so I put him in. Still, without being Beefcake, his interviews are gonna be, not going to be the best. So I said, let's go with yes, no, yes, no. You're just talking to yourself. He was crazy enough when you talked to him normally, so he pulled it off. The idea for the face paint was his. He either came up with that or Hogan gave it to him. Meng. The former King Haku in WWE arrived in WCW in 94 with a reputation as one of sport's toughest men. Despite keeping a relatively low profile in the Atlanta-based company, he stuck around in the organisation shuttered in 2001. And part of that reason is, is they were too scared to fire him. Yeah. And that is what I love about that I'm, Ming as well. I am honestly surprised that WCW isn't only going now just with Ming wrestling anyone on every night exactly. with every title around his waist I would not want to tell him that news with a Taskmaster's take I could put Ming in any match with anybody in their terrific match I could have put him with Eddie Guerrero Lex Luger anybody I needed a stable guy in the Dungeon of Doom and that's to say the other guys weren't but everybody in wrestling business knows about Ming he was the toughest guy in the business in his day all the stories are true. One time he stops in Louisiana and he puts some money down to play pool for a second. The guy playing pool said, get out of here. Meng goozled him and bit through the guy's shirt. And another guy hit him with a stick and Meng bit the guy's nose off. I think it's time to depart, gentlemen. See, only Meng could be in the most ridiculous and the most controversial. And I tell him about Nima, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, I wouldn't. No, you're the, you're the greatest wrestler the WNR <laughs> yeah. podcast has ever had. You were number one. <laughs> well, moving swiftly on, the Barbarian. A veteran of the squared circle, the Barbarian is the most remembered for wrestling alongside the Warlord as the powers of pain. Mercenaries who had memorable matches against teams like Demolition and Strike Force in WWE. Following their split, Bobby Heenan took the Barbarian on as a client, leading him to victory over Tito Santana at WrestleMania 6 in Toronto. He began teaming with Haku as his WWE tenure came to close in 91. Well, the Taskmasters tape, Meng and the Barbarian worked together great as a team and sometimes they need a tag team to wrestle some of the younger guys. It would be a shocking win if they beat Ming and the Barbarian who get a reaction just because of the way they looked. Very seldom did they lose, but when they did, it was to younger guys who people didn't expect they would lose to and they were complete businessmen. And that's the thing about them as well, actually. Absolutely, yeah. Well, you've got Big Van Vader up next. While not officially a member of the Dungeon of Doom, Big Van Vader still had tremendous impact on the group. When the Dungeon became unable to dispatch Hogan in the first months of the group's existence, Sullivan turned to the former WCW champion to take out the Immortal One. Big Van Vader was sent to eliminate Hulkamania inside a steel cage at Bash of the Beach 95, but Hulk prevailed with his WCW championship intact. Well, the Taskmaster's tape, Vader was never officially in the Dungeon of Doom. He was a hide gun for us. Vader was a star before I took over. I thought if you put him in a dungeon, it would water him down. I started getting too many guys in the dungeon, didn't want Vader watered down, but Hiram elevated him. The Dungeon of Doom couldn't beat Hogan, so we went out and got the hide guns to do it. That elevated Vader to go against Hogan. Up next, we've got the Giant, and before climbing through the ring to assist Mr. McMahon in his 1999 steel cage match against Stone Cold Steve Austin, Big Show was a dangerous WCW competitor of giant proportion. His first appearance came inside the dungeon's lair where he came crashing through a wall of stone and attacked Hulk Hogan. In his very first match at Halloween Havoc, the Giant defeated Hogan by DQ 
and the bounce stipulation became the WCW champion. Earlier in the evening, the future of the big show had fallen off the roof of Cobo Hall, Detroit's convention centre. Yeah, that was after their uh, monster truck match. But Taskmaster's take, Hogan found a young man who had never wrestled. We tried to pass him off as Andre's son, which I did not agree with because Andre was a dearest friend. He was a terrific athlete, but Andre was one of a kind. Hogan was reaching back to the past and was trying to recreate Andre because he thought it would work again. But sometimes you can't get lightning in a bottle twice. <coughs> the Yeti. Yes, James, they do get more ridiculous. Halloween Havoc 95 was a turning point for the Dungeon of Doom, and it featured the most ludicrous attraction. At the conclusion of the main event, a massive 7'2 Tower of Man hobbled to the ring, wrapped to be soiled bandage. This was the Yeti. What came next is perhaps the most inexplicable physical act to ever occur in a wrestling ring. With Hulk Hogan trapped in the Giant's bear hug, the Yeti clutched Hogan from behind and began shaking and vibrating as if he was auditioning for a Miley Cyrus video. You are seeing the end of Hulk Hogan, proclaimed Bobby Heenan. Hardly. Well, the Taskmaster's take said, I hated the ending of the Halloween Havoc match. That wasn't my idea. I was by Eric Bischoff. The Yeti was a wonderful guy, worked his butt off, but I didn't think he needed to be wrapped up like he was in a girls' commercial. It started to get a little bit more out there as other people got their hands in the direction of the Dungeon of Doom. When people say to me, where did you come up with the idea? It was so horrible. I always say, don't you think I was the first one to know it was horrible? Well, we've got Lex Luger. As the Halloween Havoc match descended into chaos, Randy Savage and Lex Luger, two of WCW's top heroes, ran to the ring to instill order and gain a measure of retribution. But the total package attacked Savage and then hoisted Hulk Hogan up into the torture rack. Luger had joined the Dungeon of Doom, but he hardly fit. The chiselled former WCW champion didn't exactly look like the dungeon's other demonic and kooky personas the taskmaster's take i didn't think lex would have been in the dungeon of doom that wasn't my idea that was like putting bicycle wheels in a roy's voice it didn't work but i don't know if it was just some personal vedette there or what but lex was ex- along with lex i never had a problem with luger at all he was a real professional to me and jimmy hart another unexpected new addition of the dungeon of doom at halloween havoc was hulk hogan's longtime ally jimmy hart the WWE Hall of Famer revealed that he had put a clause into the contract for the match, allowing the Hulkster's WWE Championship to change hands on a DQ, and then intentionally got Hogan disqualified during the bout. How could this all be legal? It wasn't. The title was vacated, won by Randy Savage soon thereafter. The Taskmaster's take, because the Dungeon of Doom was trying to destroy Alcomania, it was Hulk's idea to throw Jimmy in there, another WWE guy. Jimmy is in the WWE Hall of Fame, he's one of the greatest managers of all time, so I couldn't have been happier. Jimmy does his homework, he's a hard-working guy, and I was glad to have him. One Man Gang and Big Bubba Rogers. When Sullivan began stacking the Dungeon of Doom with Hogan's rivals from WWE, the former Twin Towers were a no-brainer. The team had reverted back to his more terrifying one-man gang persona, and Big Boss Man became Big Bubba Rogers. The Towers were as dangerous as ever. Neither was among the most bizarre of the Dungeon's members, but the two revered veterans did add a measure of respectability to the group's overall pacified goofiness, even if Rogers was wearing suspenders and a fedora. Well, one man's gang had so much notoriety as a keem in WB, and when we would go to the arena, fans would yell it. He would fit in perfectly. He was a very good form of such a big man. Dusty Rhodes came up with the name Big Bubba Rogers originally. I worked with Boss Man when he was a good guy, and I thought he was one of the greatest of all time. He never got the recognition he deserved for being such a great performer. I was glad to have him. He was terrific. Humorous. When Eric Bischoff took control of WCW, he began shoving light- a litany of competitors into Sullivan's dungeon, one of which was grappler Bill DeMott. 
He joined with Sullivan using the ring name Hugh Morris. He remembered for having the distinction of being Goldberg's first victim. Several years later, he found success as the leader of the Misfits in action and has since become one of WWE NXT's most respected trainers. Yeah, well, until he got released for beating up the actual people that he was training. And uh, Taskmaster says the name Hugh Morris came from Terry Taylor. He said, I've met Bill DeMont in Japan. He's a great guy, great foreman, obviously a great teacher, but that has been proven wrong since then. Conan, James. Arriba la raza! Well, it's hard to believe that the former Max Moon and... <coughs> it's hard to believe that the former Max Moon and Mexican wrestling legend, Conan, was a member of the Dungeon of Doom. By the time he joined the Dungeon, the group was already on its way out with the NWO on the rise. And Conan became far more remembered for donning the red and black of the wolf pack than for standing by the side of Kevin Sullivan. The Taskmaster's take, I was on a tour of the Philippines when I first met Conan. He didn't fit in the Dungeon of Doom, he was forced into it. I think he felt he was being punished in some way because we were whipping boys. But he's a fabulous performer and has a great mind for the rest of this business. He should have been on his own, putting him with us, he just lost all the steam he had. He brought the luchadors into WWE so he had a real effect on professional wrestling. I know you agree with everything you just said there as well. Loch Ness, by far the Dungeon of Doom's largest member. The 6 foot 11, 685 pound Loch Ness became a major star, major, major star, in his native England during the 1960s and 70s, with Kevin Sullivan looking for any dominant force he could find to represent a threat to Hulkamania. The Taskmaster recruited the, recruited the behemoth to join the dungeon briefly in 96. Mart- marking Martin Ruan's only notable United States appearance. Well, the Taskmaster's take, I saw him in England and we only had him for a short time, but he drew big ratings consistently for three weeks when he was in the main event. A lot of people think wrestling is Sir Lance Olivier doing Hamlet, but it's Monty Python doing Tilly Walks. People take it so seriously, want to see people who are different. Loch Ness was such a big guy who was an attraction. It was a car wreck. You couldn't take your eyes off him. In England, he was a huge star. Max. With two exits. Former bodybuilder Max Muscle joined WCW 93 as Big Bad John, but was quickly rechristened Max Muscle when he became DDP's bodyguard in 95. That too ended quickly when Muscle dropped the surname and added an X and became Max. In the Dungeon of Doom, as the group was fizzing away in 96, Max departed WCW the following year. Well, Tiles Master's tape, Max came out of the WCW power plant training school, so he was put in the Dungeon of Doom so he could be in tag matches with guys that could really perform. He did a good job for a kid's first time. Braun the Leprechaun. As more and more graduates from WCW's power plant training school began making the professional debuts, the former Sergeant Buddy Lee Parker, the school's trainer, re-emerged in WCW at Hogwild in 96 as the Dungeon of Doom's Braun the Leprechaun. The NWO is already a force to be reckoned with and Braun's tenure was brief as he returned to the power plant shortly thereafter. One of his students became Goldberg, whom Parker later formed an alliance to face off with Totally Buff. Well, the Taskmaster's tape, Buddy Lee Parker was a coach at the school and became Braun the Leprechaun for a short period. He was a ball of energy that was really tough and rest of the guys that were his students. After a short period, he went back to coaching because he was needed back at the camp. The Ultimate Solution and Zed Gangster. <coughs> six foot five, four, the six foot four, 405 pound Robert Swenson was nicknamed Jeep thanks to his truck-like build and claimed to have the largest biceps in the world. In 1987, Swanson had faced Bruiser Brody at WCCW's Parade of Champions and had gone to make a name for himself in Hollywood. When the Dungeon of Doom joined forces with the Four Horsemen to end Hulkamania, 
Swenson was brought in as the ultimate solution. Oh, I could do that. If there was one man who was perceived to have Hulk Hogan's number, it was Zeus, whose cup of coffee in the WWE as a villain from No Hell's Bard became one of the greatest threats to Hulkamania's existence. Brought to WSW alongside Swenson in the same 1996 match at Uncensored, he was renamed Z Gangster, but the alliance to end Hulkamania came up short and the former Zeus was never seen in WCW again. Well, Taskmaster's take is Hogan brought Swenson in. They knew each other from the AWA and from doing movies. He did what he was supposed to do and did it well. He only had one night contract and was going and was doing the Batman and Robin movie. Zeus was Hulk going back into the past to get a lightning in a bottle again, but it didn't work. He just did that one match at Uncensored 96. It might have been Hulk's idea for him to stick around longer, but Hulk saw that it didn't work out. Too much time had gone by since the movie and his work wasn't up to par. Yeah, so that is the history of the Dungeon of Doom. And I mean, there are some great names in there when you think about the Yeti and Loch Ness and Braun Lepke. What do you think the most ridiculous uh, member is of the Dungeon of Doom when you have a look at it? Um, Loch Ness. <laughs> I mean, a six foot eleven, 685 pound wrestler. Well, he was a star in the 60s and 70s, but... In the 90s, yeah. I like the master as well, you know. I've got to say that he's uh, one of my favorites just because of his very distinctive look. And our first clip is from Clash of Champions, August 6th for 95. And the Dungeon of Doom had a plan. My son, the real white-fingered tiger, the immoral Hogan, He fell for the trap, Father, and tonight, in the Dungeon of Doom, the slaughter of the immortal Hulk Hogan will prevail! Taskmaster! Taskmaster! The path you've laid is perfectly clear. Only a man that was ready for combat would follow it. After what happened with Kamal in the ring, brother, I held your whole army at bay. The shark, the zodiac, and Kamal, brother. Bring them all out. Let them feel the power of Hulkamania right now in the dungeon, brother. As they fall at my feet, you'll feel the power. And then, your most powerful possession. Bring him to me. Bring the giant to me. I fought giants before, and I can't wait to fight your most powerful warrior. Because that's in stone. Only Hulkamania will live forever, Taskmaster. You don't understand. I will destroy Hulkamania. Because I am the son of a giant. You can run, but you can't hide. 
<laughs> what are your thoughts on what we've just seen? There was so much growling that I couldn't understand what was going on. It was that was bad. I mean, that is eighties acting at his worst. When I don't know who's worse than that. What you mean? Because with a giant, he's terrible. But it is his first show, isn't it? You know. Yeah. So you, I think, kind of Hogan was. I can't even believe I'm saying this, but the only shining light in that fucking clip. I mean, he was the best actor, <laughs> and. You know, everything else just fell flat. I couldn't understand what the Taskmaster and uh, the Master was saying. I, I don't know where the Zodiac was hiding with the shark when they finally showed up I to beat know. him down. And then Vader came in, and why was Sting and fucking Jimmy Hart just stood there watching? <laughs> yeah, rather than helping the beat down. down. Come on, let's drag him out. That is unbelievable way to have our first clip. But it doesn't end there, though. Well, Hogan had to fight fire with fire and embrace the dark side. So on the 13th of November, 95, a new Hogan was seen. So how would Hogan fight the Dungeon of Doom? Uh, uh, you know something, Hulkamaniacs? The darkness in the Dungeon of Doom shakes in fear just because Hulk Hogan is walking around with the power of the training, the prayers, and the vitamins. Everyone from Kevin Sullivan to the master to each and every creature that breathes the doom is afraid of Hulkamania because the training, the prayers, and the vitamins are immortal. They'll live forever. And now my brother of the road, the macho man, is on a mission He's going to bring us the head of Ming on a silver platter. The first man on the destruction hit list of Hulkamania. And as he walks into the light of Nitro, may the maniacs be with him. But I feel a strange presence through what went down with Sting and Luger. I don't know where Sting's head's at, brother. I don't know if Sting is in the dark side or the light side of Hulkamania, if he's friend or foe, brother. But when the macho man walks carefully into the lightness, when the macho man brings Ming's head back on a silver platter, before I go down the hit list, before we take him out one at a time, me and the macho man together, I'm going to look at Sting somewhere in the eye, somewhere in the near future. And I'm going to find out exactly where he's coming from. Because if he's on the doom side with Sullivan, I'm going to move his name to the top of the list, brothers. The stench in the Dungeon of Doom is not powerful enough to even make my little Hulkamaniacs shake in fear for one moment. So macho man, from the love of Hulkamania to you, moose fast, Move swift, bring me the head of Ming on a silver platter. And what is the Dungeon of Doom going to do when the Macho Man and Hulk Hogan take the darkness of the Doom and turn it to destroy you? Who was that? That wasn't Hogan, because Hogan has a moustache. Well... That man clearly didn't have a moustache. That man had a black cape, black gloves, and a, a mask on, and probably the worst Phantom of the Opera cosplay that I've seen. It's dark, Hulk Hogan. And if, he, if you gave Hogan uh, the Oscar for Best Actor in the last one, that was him at his worst there, surely. 
Well, don't call me Shirley, but yeah, he he was absolutely awful. I mean, I don't think he can remember the script. <laughs> um, the sword, what's that got to do with it? That rat that's on the little uh, thing at the back as well, that little brick thing, oh, that looks really flat. It looks really malnourished. I'm concerned for that rat. Yeah. I uh, think um, the RSPCA <laughs> need to kind of have a word with the producers there because that is not right. Well, it's not right Hogan dressed in black using the Dungeon of Doom against them. Uh, and, of course, that is, that's just like I say, the gift that keeps on giving the Dungeon of Doom, 1995 to 1996, were probably the most ridiculous stable of all time. And what a way to start us off at number 10. Yes, well, moving uh, swiftly on, how can we get more ridiculous? <laughs> well, we can certainly try. Number nine, it is Hillary Clinton versus Barack Obama. And that was a classic matchup. Now, on April 2008, WWE managed to get Hillary Clinton, John McCain, and Barack Obama to cut pre recorded promos ahead of the US presidential election in 2008. It was a source of mainstream acceptance Vince McMahon had always appeared to crave. Well, that's why it's so baffling that he decided to keep the match between Hillary and Obama impersonators with a Bill Clinton impersonator and ringside, which aired immediately after the promos. It was the sort of thing you did if the candidates declined to come onto the show. The juxtaposition between the real candidates and their corny doubles came off as tacky and hopelessly out of touch. So close to respectability, and yet so far. So our number nine moment from April 21st, 2008, and it's raw. And that's right, it's Barack Obama going against Hillary Clinton. So that's just to prove they actually did give clips as well so Hillary Clinton the back above are actually there and of course now we've got the ring rope surrounded with the American flag Democratic primary smackdown on Raw <laughs> see Hulk Hogan involved again the voted Hulkamaniac he's got a lot to answer for in most ridiculous and coming, up... coming down to Hogan's <laughs> theme as well and I mean Ishuri that looks an awful lot like Hillary with Bill but the thing is it's how do you go about, you phone up an agent, a lookalike agency, and uh, you say, right, can I get a Hillary and Bill Clinton lookalike, please, and a Barack Obama lookalike? And they're like, you know, slightly concerned. What are you going to do with these lookalikes? Well, they're going to appear on WWE television and have a match. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, have they got wrestling experience? Have they? Uh, but And the crowd sitting, well, they're standing up, but there's just no interest in... Oh, look. Oh. <laughs> Bill. How funny is that? He tripped coming into the ring. Hillary's doing the Hulk Hogan ear cupping. And getting, getting booed. booed. It might be the same Bill Clinton person that they used back at Survivor Series 1994. You never know. Possibly. Well, not a great reaction, but, you know. So Vincent Mann thought to himself, God damn, we've had him on there. I tell you, it'll be hilarious. Have him have a match, damn it. And you just picture him laughing back, saying, oh, ha, 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 ha. God, look at him fall. If Barack Obama comes out to the New Day track, I'm leaving. I thought he'd come out to John Cena's theme. Here he's going. We're wishing for Dungeon of Doom, aren't we, watching? <laughs> yeah. Uh, please, I'd rather watch the Zodiac. Come on, Shark Man. Big Bubba Rogers. Yeah. Um, Bill now just posing. Hillary's trying to talk. Stop being so silly. I did not have sexual relations <laughs> with that woman. Well, Hillary's saying the time is up. The time is now. The time is now. Do you think the fans in attendance pay for a wrestling match? I mean, this is silly, isn't it? I mean... It is they, ridiculous. They should be enjoying themselves. 
Of course, this is a 60-minute Ironman match as well, so we've got that a lot forward to. Oh, what are you going to do, Hillary? Well, and the Hogan theme playing again, and Hillary posing, and this is, this is just... This is awful. It's probably only gone two minutes, but it feels like 20. At least 20 minutes. So now here comes Barack Obama, of course, out to the Rock's theme tune, obviously. But Rock Obama. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my fucking ears. I cannot confirm or deny, but I don't think there is real ears. And, of course, the President of the United States, Barack Obama, would go on to be in office for two terms. He's getting mocked here for being big ears. But at least he's not coming out with anything else. Shaking hands and kissing babies. I wonder if the kid realises it's actually Barack Obama. It's not really him. And Bill Clinton just giving Hillary a little bit of a uh, bit of a talk. Let's see if Barack Obama gets in the ring without any mishap. Oh, of course, he's going to do the rock. He can smell what the people are cooking. And there are dozens and dozens watching Barack Obama as he makes his rock entrance. Well, I got confused for that. I actually did think it was the rock. But no, it is Barack Obama. He finally makes his way in. Tell him to bring it. Now he's got the mic. Ah, that's not bad. Finally, Barack has come back. South Carolina. He's given the eyebrow as well. You've got to respect that. I can smell what Barack is cooking. Oh, classic there. Barack Obama had the mic. We'll say, what do you think? And then Bill Clinton gets it. I'll tell you what I think. It doesn't matter what you think, Barack Obama, with a put down to Bill. And now if you smell... Come back in the room, Dan. It's not as bad as this. Come on, come back. It's, it's worthwhile. <laughs> We've had Barack Obama now. Given his his rock bits. We haven't um, had the match yet. It um, has been 10 minutes since. And we've got people moaning <laughs> about Corbin and Ziggler handcuffing Roman Reigns to the ring and wiping dog food on his face. This ain't nothing. And bringing someone out in a dog costume. We've gone to get the best, most ridiculous moments. This is this is offensive. And now referee checking behind the ears, of course. And I don't know who do you favour in this one. Who are you going for? Um, I'm going to have to back Hillary. I think she's got Bill... By her side, he could be a wild card in this. I think without a doubt, you got to watch out Bill Clinton. As, uh, hopefully, the referee hasn't got foot fetish. And the fans chanting bullshit. But here we go. Oh, Hillary with a takedown. Double leg takedown by Clinton. Barack Obama managing to push her off, though. Kick to the midsection. She oh. picks up Barack Obama and slams him down. The power. Now we're going to see the Hillary Hogan leg drop. Hits it. Into the cover. One, One two... two. No. Barack Obama managing to kick out. Uh-huh. Well, Bill Clinton at the ringside. Can't believe Barack Obama got to his feet. Knee to the midsection for Barack. It looks to be in position for the Barack bottom. Oh, Hillary in trouble. And Barack trying to get the people's acceptance. Plants Hillary. That is one of the most powerful rock bottoms I've seen. I don't think he's finished there. Barack can smell what he's cooking. Is he going to go for it? The most electrifying movie. Oh. oh, I was about to say sports entertainment or politics, but Bill Clinton. Tripping the leg of Barack Obama. And our referee counting, both contestants are down. <laughs> and it might be a double count out. And now, wait a minute. Oh, my God. Well, I'd never thought I'd be pleased to see you manga. Well, I tell you what, I mean, this is about ridiculous, but just a moment of seriousness. It's been 10 years since the passing of Amaga. And what a great performer he was. And I'm say he's coming out here to break this match up. The Samoan bulldozer. <laughs> and who's he going to go for, though? He's going to go for Hillary and Bill. Well, is he a Democratic or is he a Republican? Well, who's going to be in trouble here? Uh-oh. And he's looking at Barack. And Imago's got hold of Barack Obama. 
Samoan spike. And Bill Clinton now saying, come on, he's on our side, it's fine. I don't think it can go wrong for Bill Clinton. There you go, he's friends with Umaga. Or as William Regal will say, Umunga. Umanga. Uh-oh. Well, he just made Bill Clinton crap himself. Clinton's running away. He's left his wife in the ring. Hillary's by herself. And Umaga, don't tell me he's going to take out Hillary. Oh, my word. Picks up on his shoulders. Samoan drop for Hillary. And maybe every presidential debate should end with someone like Umaga coming out and dropping both of them. Well, that is 10 minutes of my life. I will never, ever get back. Dan, what are your thoughts on number nine, the most ridiculous? Well, you know, I thought I'd seen it when, uh, seen it all when uh, Donald Trump got stunned and beaten by Vince and then shaved Vince McMahon's head bald. But, you know, I thought he would be the only president to appear on WWE television, but no. Seeing Hillary and Barack Obama. Yes, both of them getting destroyed by Umaga. And um, what can we say about that? Oh, well, one thing we can say, thankfully, we do move on. And up next, it's number eight. Yes, and that's Chikara Amazon. Chikara, stylized in all capital letters and sometimes referred to as Chikara Pro, is an American professional wrestling promotion based in Philly, Pennsylvania. The company takes both its name and logo from the Japanese kanji, meaning strength. It was founded in 2002 by professional wrestlers Mike Quackenbush and Reckless Youth, who also served as trainers and in-ring performers. Well, the promotion holds multiple live events per month, and the majority being held at the Wrestle Factory. Two of their major events, major major events. events. September's King of Trios, promotion's premier event, and April's Tag World Grand Prix are centred on tag team and trio matches. Major events. Major events. Include Anniversary O held in May and the Young Lions Cup tournament held between June and August. In 2011, Chicago introduced the Grand Championship the promotion's primary singles championship. Well, influenced by the Lucha Libre tradition, Chikara performers are grouped into Technicos and Rudos, the Lucha Libre terms for faces and heels, respectively. Just as in Lucha Libre, many performers in the promotion have also performed under masks and with unique gimmicks. Right, so before we look at the history, like I say, Chikara, and it is available on Amazon, and that's where we're going to watch it. The first two... Uh, 10 and 9 on our list we're on the WWE Network and this is on Amazon and we will be putting up links to where we're watching it because we're going to be using YouTube and of course other things like that as we carry on this list alright so the history in the summer of 2000 after recklessly Tom Carter had been released from the WWF development deal he, Mike Quackenbush and Don Montoya started talking about starting a wrestling school which would teach professional wrestling in various international styles Originally, the school was to be called Impact Wrestling, not to be confused with the later promo of the same name. But when Montoya decided not to put up money for its foundation and left the project, Carter and Quackenbush decided they would need a new name. The Wrestle Factory was founded by Carter and Quackenbush in Allentown, Pennsylvania on January 7th, 2002. His first class included Ultramantis, Mr. Zero, Dragonfly, Hello Wicked and the Ick Ichabon Slain. Well, in May the same year, Chicago expanded to the wrestling promotion with the intent of showcasing its students. The first show on May 25th, 2002 featured not only Wrestle Factory students and head trainers, but several other independent wrestlers, including Don Montea, CM Punk, Colt Cabana, Chris Hero, Lovebug, Martial Law and Blind Rage. Well, the main event of the first show featured Quackenbush and Youth, joined by Don Montoya as the Black T-Shirt Squad defeated the Gold Bond Mafia of Chris Hero, CM Punk and Colt Cabana. 
In the early days, Blind Rage, Hello Wicked and Ichabon Slain formed a stable known as The Night Shift, which became the top group as Rudos or Hills in the promotion. Yeah, and then a, a long struggle to basically get some uh, kind of recognition. And on April 26, 2009, Chikara announced a working agreement with Dragon Gate USA, which shows Chikara wrestlers take part in Dragon Gate USA events. Throughout the year, Chikara has also worked with several Japanese promotions bringing their talent over to the United States, including Dragon Gate, Ice Ribbon, JWP, Joshi Pro Wrestle, and Sendai Girls Pro Wrestling. In 2010, Chikara established a close working relationship with the Osaka Pro Wrestling Promotion. And in December 2011, they partnered with numerous Japanese promotions to hold a three-day-long event, Joshi Mania, which featured some of the biggest names in Joshi Pro Wrestling. Wrestlers such as uh, Ayaka, Dick Togo, The Great Suzuki, Jinzi Shinseki, Kena, Kori Yonamara, Kota Ibushi, Manama Toyota and Mayuma Ozaki have made rare American appearances for Shikara. Well, on April 25th, 2010, Shikara announced the release of a video game titled Rudo Resurrection for multiple gaming platforms later in the year. After not being heard of again for four years, it was announced on May 2nd, 2014, that a new developer, Rotary Games, had picked up the rights to the game. On August 1st, 2011, Chikara announced the first ever live internet pay-per-view titled High Noon, which take place November 13th, 2011, which featured a crown on the first ever Chikari Grand Champion. The event again would break Chikari's attendance record during 864 fans. June 2012, High Noon was followed by the Chikarus Rex, How to Hatch a Dinosaur, and Under the Hood internet pay-per-view. In February 2002, Chikara launched their first ever webcomic written by Joey Esposito and drawn by Alex Cormack, telling the skins of Fightmare. On April 6, 2013, Chikara took part in WrestleCon, held during the WrestleMania 29 weekend in Syracuse, New Jersey, holding an event which again broke the promotion's attendance record. In December 2016, Chikara concluded its 16th season. However, when the promotion returned to February 2017, it was announced at the start of season 18. Season 17 had been taped during the break and would be streamed on Shikaratopia. In On August 7th, 2019, Shikara announced a working relationship with Mishinoku Pro Wrestling. So that's the history, but while Shikara is known for its weirdness and comic book storytelling, think of it as a PG predecessor to Lucha Underground. One of the things that keep people coming back is the company's immense sense of humour. A lot of the time they take a step back and try not to take themselves too seriously. The rest of reality gets broken and many laughs are had. So if you do decide to shell out some money on Shikaratopia, here are some of the funniest matches in Shikara history. Yeah. And also we should say it was on. You'd be able to get season 11 to uh, season 19 as it is. And we just got a match on in the background featuring Colt Cabana. But we're going to look at the matches. The first match is Archibald Peck, El Hio de Ice Cream, Scott Parker and Dasher Hatfield versus Ashley Remington, Ice Cream Junior, Shane Matthews and a Mr. Touchdown. It took place at Moonraker, October 26, 2014. Well, sometimes we'll get a big tag team match where they take pre-existing teams and split them onto each side. That's what we get here, albeit with Archie and Remington being counterparts. This whole match was filled with ridiculous and hilarious moments, including an impromptu Royal Rumble and referee Bryce Remsburg somehow being declared the winner of the entire match via Tombstone. Yeah, but the focus of the entry is probably the funniest moment in Chicago history. El Hijo del Ice Cream and Ice Cream Junior choose to hug it out rather than fight. Archie and Remington drag them away out of annoyance only to turn around and hug each other. Bryce attempting to make them stop hugging initiated a count. As you can guess, 
They let go right after he got to one. Continuity. Well, Remington played if he did a finger gun gesture at Archie with a wink and a smile rather than be charmed. Archie took it literally and then, ah, you shot me. El Hio screamed in the presence of the invisible room. Remington looked around in frantic confusion with his hands still in finger gun form as his teammates and various people in the audience ducked for cover. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking hell. Well, as this played out, Archie stood back up a finger gun with revenge on his mind. He slowly pointed it towards Remington. Then at the last second, Bryce dove in front of Remington and took the non-existent bullet. He landed lifeless in the centre of the ring while all eight wrestlers shared in stock as a crowd chanted, You killed Bryce. All eight wrestlers, all at the same time, silently slinked out of the ring and slowly made their way to the back, trying to wash their hands of it all. That's it, but Shane Matthews looked over Bryce's dead body and yells, Guys, we can cheat. Then they all let loose a bunch of chokes, back rakes, eye gouges, purple nipples, and so on as the match continued. Yeah, so that's just a taste of what we got. <laughs> uh, it's just a taste. So up next, Tim Donst and Hydra versus Godjin and Tuka from Anniversary and May 23rd, 2008. Every now and then, a kaiju big battle would cross over with Shikara, which made all the sense in the world especially since both promotions had their own cartoonish supervillains in Ultramantis Black and Dr. Cube. They were besties for a while. A match was put together of Ultramantis underlings Hydra, Frail Monster and Muscle Suit, and Tim Donst, undercover All-American wrestler, pretend to be brainwashed against Grudgeon, genetic mix of Anglerfish and Silverback Gorilla, and Tuka, genetic mix of Gerbil and Tukon. Tuka is by the far the most nightmarish-looking thing in wrestling. Well, the match was short, but it went off the rails pretty fast. Donst introduced a miniature high striker, you know, the carnival game, so Hydra and Tukor could test their strength in a different way. After that, the two sides brought out some big wheels to do a game of chicken. Donst and Hydra won both the game of chicken and shortly after the match itself. Then Dr. Cube angrily chewed out everyone, so we all won. Up next, CP Monk versus Darkness Crabtree, Little Creatures, October 21st, 2005. Hey, WWE isn't the only company to have a bitter axe to grind with Phil Books. In 2005, a few matches featured a guy in a plush chipmunk, chipmunk costume with a Pepsi tattoo onto its side. Drug-free and acorn-free CP Monk <laughs> wasn't long for the world, but he did get to have an enjoyable, terrible battle with octogenarian luchador Darkness Crabtree. Part of the match revolved around Crabtree's ability to gain insane luchability via taking pills and how CP Monk couldn't abide by that. Remember for the end, where upon hitting the old stone stunner, Crabtree went for a pin and only got a two count. As wrestlers tend to do, he argued, he argued with the ref that it was three. Usually a match would just continue. Instead, Bryce Remsburg shrugged, took Crabtree's word for it, declared it to be free, and ended the match. <laughs> <laughs> well, the big saving grace here is Eddie Kingston as the lone commentator at tonight. This was both the best and worst thing he'd ever seen. Also, we've got Unstable and 2.0 versus Dasher Hatfield, Linsterado, Carpenter Ant, Green Ant and Colt Cabana. This is hiding in plain sight, September 13th, 2009. The face team needed a replacement by picking names out of a hat. They called for Matt Classic and Scotty Goldman. Well, neither was there, but the third pick Colt Cabana certainly was. He rounds out the 10-man tag and got the tussle with Colin Delaney, with the two making fun of each other for the minor WWE runs. Then they did a gag where they'd bounce off the ropes a few times. Colt would tell Colin to stop and look up, then he'd slap Colin. <coughs> the second time, Colin tried to get him to look up, but Colt told him no and slapped him. The third time, 
Colt pointed out that this was 100% going to end with Colin getting slapped. Colin spent about a minute trying to rationalise his decision and got slapped. Dasher Hatfield placed Colin into the corner via Trio while usually the follow-up is running all corners, four corners and hit the baseball side. Instead, Vingera blocked him off. Suddenly, when Gavin Loudspeaker announced it transformed into a game of baseball. Dash from third base, Stigma as a catcher. Vingera's a reluctant pitcher. Colt was a batter. The fans doing the wave and Colin still hung upside down. Well, Colt hit a pot fly and the two members of 2.0 collided in the outfield. Dasher and his teammates hit a baseball slide on Colin, except for Colt, who slapped him. <laughs> well, God, I love this company. As we see now with a match, right at this time, we've got one, two, three, four, five men, all in the head scissors. And Colt Cabana, instead of performing it on someone, he turns <laughs> everyone over into an inverted Boston crab. And it looks like, um, what's that fucking caterpillar thing? Oh, the human centipede. The human centipede, that's it. Oh, my God. And now the, the chicken looks like it's climbing. There's a chicken in there. There's a cuddle. What looks like the swamp thing? And still the most ridiculous person in there is Colt Cabana. Yeah. Well, Colt wants a kiss. But instead gets punched. <laughs> right hand. And now, and now he can't even tightrope properly enough four times. I don't know if he's intended to do that. But now the chicken is beating the colonel, everyone. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, things are broken down. And this is like outside of WWE and WCW. There are some promotions that... Um, just go with it and we're going to see the Bulldogs. No, nope, they all crash heads in the middle and all fall down. <laughs> it's like a ring of ring of roses. Oh, no. It starts counting and then they all fall down. The referee counts again and they all sit up. Oh, they chopped each other again. Now referee count again. I love it. <laughs> Colgabana had enough of that. And now the referee gets legs swept into position. <laughs> and he's going around doing duck, 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 goose. <laughs> now he's being chased. <laughs> well, yes, this is a wrestling match. And they're playing duck, 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 goose. <laughs> and the referee's even a part of it. Here we go. <laughs> is this a man who's really tired? <laughs> looks that way, just Or a zombie. The old, looks like an old wrestler. He's getting run rings around him. But he gets taken out by the man dressed in grass? Swamp. Oh, swamp thing. Ruined, trying to ruin a match, but Swamp Thing sends the guy outside. And now again, it all breaks down. And what looks like a kind of Mexican king versus Swamp Thing. I think the Swamp Thing smells. Now they're taking turns <laughs> of rolling them up and flipping the pins. Well, this is unlike anything that I've seen. They've got to get to the shoulder up and they get circled. <laughs> Go on. Go on. <laughs> I honestly don't even know. And now the Colonel's in there with an actual normal looking wrestler. Well, the referee got taken out. All of them got taken out. And now the colonel's in trouble. And there's a sleepy man still wandering about. I don't know what the fuck he's doing. The colonel's spinning. Well, <laughs> don't look like a Michinoku driver there. But the commentator called it a version of a DDT. Well, now the chicken versus the colonel. And boss man slam. The Cabana takes on the chicken. Oh, went for the elbow, but got caught. Swamp monster gets slammed by the chicken. Well, the chicken is on fire, baby. Back comes... Well, I hope not. It'll be Chargro chicken. Takes out the colonel. Um, oh, here comes the old man again. Is that Crabtree? <laughs> He's going to take him out. Nope. Got slammed. <laughs> He's just like killed him. <laughs> and, oh my God, he's not breathing. Especially concerned. <laughs> putting a towel over his head. Leaving him there. And you you got to pretend that you can't visibly see him breathing. And now he's got beer. It's Red Bull, isn't it? Yeah, it's Red Bull, you're right. 
He's pouring it into the mask. Oh, he's alive! He's got wings! <laughs> he's red balling up! He's going crazy. <laughs> Mahuma chopping everyone. You! Oh, no. The energy's run out. <laughs> A diving headbutt come up short. He didn't plan it properly. And now they're picking him up onto the pin. One, two, three. Wow. That's the greatest things I've seen. Dan, that is ridiculous. What are your thoughts on it? I think it's ridiculous, but you certainly can't compare it to WWE because it is nothing like anything <laughs> WWE would produce. And I'm not saying it is actually worse than some of the crap WWE produce, but it certainly is very different. And, you know, obviously these people in attendance absolutely love the show. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, I thought that was quite entertaining. <laughs> it ain't that... Like you said, he's not been seen in WWE and it's available. So even on Amazon, there's clips, of course, on uh, YouTube as well. And speaking of YouTube, we're going to go checking it out next because the number seven, we've got Orange Cassidy. Well, yes, as you say, number seven on the left is much like Marmite. Most love, the rest hate him. But where did he come from? Well, not much is known about him. No, Pro wrestlers each have their own way to make you care about them. Some are so obnoxious, you lose your voice yelling at them. Brave and valiant underdogs make you shed a tear or two. Orange Cash, on the other hand, takes his sunglasses very seriously. Well, let's start with one match versus Darren Corbin. <laughs> yeah, Darren Corbin. That's nothing to do with Baron. No, it's, it's of course... Darren. Darren. And okay, these are available on YouTube. Like I said, we're going to post the links up, links up as well. Darren. <clears throat> and Orange Cassidy standing there with his shades on. He's got his hands in pockets as he ducks a clothesline attempt from Corbin. And Cassidy's just so cool. Anybody have never seen him before. Just a jeans, sunglasses on, hands in pockets. Oh, Snapmare takedown, but Cassidy rolls through with his hands still in his pockets. He's a, he's a very lackadaisical style wrestler, isn't he? Yeah, I think there's obviously you got the coolness of what Cassidy's all about. And he's getting told to take his hands out of his fucking pockets. Gets his hand dragged out, but just puts it straight back in there again. All the fans booing as well. They're not happy. <laughs> they cheer and the hand goes back in. And the fans chanting, holy shit already. He put his hands in his pockets. And I think that's what makes it as well. There's a crowd. Then it's just a really great experience. Cassidy still with his hands in his pockets. Shoots him off. Shoulder tackle. And Cassidy just bouncing off. Hitting with one of his own. And just casually steps over him as Corbin goes down low. <laughs> oh, my God. And he just managed to escape from Corbin going underneath. <laughs> the first shot, this is awesome. Oh, no. Corbin now's got Cassidy. And he's getting the hands taken out of the pockets. And now he's got the waist lock. But Cassidy adjusts his glasses, puts his hands back in his pocket. <laughs> manages to escape. He might be one of the most slippery wrestlers of all time. Oh, and a huge chop sending Cassidy down to his knees. <laughs> Is he going to tap out? No, he's stopping himself. This could be the end of the match already. Can he get to the ropes? Oh, no, did he get pulled to the centre of the ring? Oh, no, now he's starting with the chops. Oh! Oh, my God, look at the combinations! <laughs> and a huge chops have so much effect. Oh... And that's not fair. Why would Darren Corbin want to do that? And Corbin puts Cassidy's hands in his own pockets. Cassidy managed to evade it. Drop kick. Nip up. And I think that's what's great about Orange Cassidy. Because the thing is, 
is that always oh, you get straight down by spear obviously the stuff he's doing you know it's a little bit so when he actually just does something like a drop kick and a nip up the reaction it gets is the equivalent of someone coming off the top rope with a four fifth something like that and i think that is a beauty in um his performances well, what I think is ridiculous is the people that go along with it as if he's doing such a fucking hard chop. It's not. You can see that it's not. Yeah, but it's like the right. Shikara audience. You have to be though, some fucking kind of moron. Yeah, but it's... But Shikara, it's a promotion based on that. This is just a gimmick based on doing what he's doing. But the and it's, it's it. something that, you know, you see it once, yeah, it was funny. But seeing him do it every time, like his, you know, his sweet shin music or his fucking chops. Yeah, funny first time. But every time you see it, it gets less and less and less funny until you're just like, really? I suppose it's a bit like Marmite, but I think the fans that do like it and the people that do get it, you know, kind of enjoy it. And I think that brings more experience to it because, like I said, it's little and more. You know, Cassidy could do this for a very long time and it's very kind of risk-free and stuff like that. And it gets a reaction, warranted. Like, as long as you kind of go along with it, Corbin doesn't like it. No, again, I think it's, it's more of a, a gimmick thing that won't last that long people will get more bored of it than it is yeah you know it's i do like his sporadic appearances in aw when the toilet door got busted in and he just seems to there with his glasses on or you know just having appearances like that but you can never bill him as someone who's going to be a tag team champion as someone who's going to be a legitimate everyone pretty much everyone else in aw you can see them being champion Orange Cassidy is someone that you certainly can't. I can see Orange Cassidy as no, champion. Not in a million years. But do you think funny uh, doesn't equal money then? Do you think you can't be funny if you want to be money and will be successful in wrestling? Because this is the argument that happens sometimes. I, I think, you know, funny, it won't equal top-rate le- wrestling. Yeah, it might equal money, but won't be money for a long time. It's not going to be something that sticks around as long as like The Undertaker's gimmick, Austin's gimmick, you know, something like that. It's going to be something that, you know, once you've seen it a few times, it will get bored of quickly. You know, if he lasts a year in a promotion, then that's doing well for him. I don't know. I, I would say... Because now, look, you know, he starts off lackadaisical. Now he's actually trying to hit people. And now, he, you know, he's kind of completely taken away from his gimmick. Oh, suicide dive as he comes back. Corbin's been beating him down. And a big DDT goes for the cover. One, two, no. Corbin gets shoulder up at two. Two. The thing I like about Orange Cassidy is the fact that, like, he's got the character down. And he knows exactly what he means by it. And like you said, you can go through a match. And the crowd are really invested in it as he kind of brings it out a little bit more. Yeah, I understand his character. But why start off going, like, all lightly tapping and, you know, the referees and the fucking crowd and the commentators all overselling it to what it is. But now, like, you know... Three, four minutes into the match, he's actually wrestling like a proper wrestler. Because that's part of his gimmick, isn't it? But it's better than just being a kind of generic, like a Darren Corbin. There's no discernible thing about him. He's I'm just an independent Darren wrestler. Darren Corbin is the better Corbin of the two. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm not saying he's not. I'm not agreeing with you with that. But, you know... I'm just saying there's kind of general... If you look at how many wrestlers there are in the world, it's good to stand out by having something with that. Oh, and, yeah, he you know. certainly stands out. But I don't think he's, he stands out more... As a corner man or something like that, than a performer. But I think some, I think funny can equal money sometimes. In if you look at people like Mankind, who decided to change his gimmick up a little bit and be more goofy. The same with someone like Kurt Angle or even Stone Cold Steve Austin, who started playing the guitar at some points. You know, I think you need that, and I think it can be successful. Yeah, it's good. You know, I'm not I'm not denying having a comedy aspect to your gimmick. I mean, our truth. His is you know there is a there is a majority of 
comedy to his character. But it's something that he works with, whereas Orange Cassidy, I mean, he starts off all lackadaisical and then, you know, kind of goes into a serious performer mode. No, I like it. And Cassidy there getting the orange juice. And he was going to use juice. Corbin caught with a Corbin cutter, I guess it was. And as he went for the pin, managing to roll him up and get the victory. So it's all right for the freshly squeezed John and Cassidy. But like I said, the good thing about Cassidy is it creates a debate as well. It's not just like a guy, like who, like you said, like a Corbin, like anybody, Adam Page or someone like that, you know, who you're not really sure about. At least there's groups. There's people that absolutely love him. And people are absolutely hate him. Kind of, I don't think there's any middle ground with someone like Orange Cassidy. And I think that's quite good in a way as well. No. Nah. Uh, well, that is certainly true, yeah. Uh, and speaking of that, like we say, you've got to know that you missed an entrance on par with The Undertaker's. Jefferson Starship Jane isn't just a practically perfect song for Cassidy entrance, where he walks in with a slow measured pace that most of us associate with the last stages of a hangover. It's unstreamable because of license's costs. But as Orange Cassidy rolls into and out of the ring like a tired little dash hound, you start to see that this guy is an unusually cool cat. Most wrestlers are pushi- pushing a s- ferocious intensity, but this dude here is feeling okay. Maybe. Highly relatable and unusual, Orange will start throwing hands, but only softly. The crowd does not care that it looks like Cassidy doesn't, and a holy shit chant will break out, while his opponent looks like Mungatu thinking he took crazy pills. Well, we won't explain another whole Orange Cassidy match, but the early on moments get punctured with the exclamation mark moments as these sacred objects come into play. Struggling with his sunglasses and his pant pockets and lastly his orange juice. There's so much about his stuff that when he wins the crowd over and he builds them up to a fervour. Well, those paying attention with an open mind will always get the most out of wrestling and this is never more than the case with Orange Cassidy. The negative responses coming from hardline traditionalists those who know how to take the stick out of their asses and have fun, however, start to notice he's one of the last performers who works like a method actor. Never breaking character, which is more old school than off the top rope chop. Even as most wrestlers are using their real names on social media, there's barely a trace of him anywhere outside of one episode of a certain interview show. He never walks around the venue after his match in his street clothes. Even after the show's over, most have gone home. He lives with a gimmick. He's even putting a Google Play Store link to Fast Fire next to his social media icons on his own Sight. So, Orange Cassidy, we don't know a lot about him. Obviously, you know, he wants to be successful, but he's got this gimmick. And, and I think we talk about gimmicks, and it leads perfectly to number six as well, because you've got someone, again, who you know or not, that he is uh, either, you know, just funny, would he make money, or very serious. But he's a guy that we've been a fan of recently. Number six is Joey Ryan. Well, for wrestling fans with a keen interest in the scene, Joey Ryan will be a familiar name. And he says on the origin of the penis flip... He says, so you know, obviously the character is very much my character. He's very porn star-esque. And then there's wrestler in DDT named Dashunku Dino, who is, and the political reckless of DDT, and in Japan he's a little dif- different. He plays a gay character, but he's very much of that, I'm going to freak out my opponents by being gay, by which over the top. Which, I mean, maybe I'm looking into a glass full, but I think when I'm watching him, I'm like, oh, he's so proud of being gay. I don't see it as a negative, but maybe I'm just trying to justify it in my head. But you know what I mean. He's very confidently gay. And so he does this thing where he wrestles and grabs his opponent by the crutch. And the opponent reacts like, why are you grabbing? And then he suplexes them or dragon screw leg lifts them by their penis. And so that's the kind of thing here. And we're going to wrestle for the first time. We're on opposite sides of a six-man tag. They even did a press conference like, oh, the porn star guy is going to wrestle our gay guy. It's like this whole big thing. 
And so we're coming up with some ideas for it. And he pitches to me. And this is me giving him full credit for the idea. He suggests in broken English, maybe I'll grab you. Maybe you know Sal because American cock is so big and so strong. Because he's working with Japanese guys all the time. He wants to play off the stereotype. And I was like, okay, okay. So we come up with the idea where I bump him instead. And it's the opening spot of this six-man tag. And we don't think of it more than that. We go in, he grabs and I flip him. Whatever, we go on, do the rest of the match. Well, November 28th, 2015, on another video going viral, he said, now I'm pretty self-critical when I watch myself back. I'm like, oh, this could have looked better. This could have been better. But when I watched that match back, that 30-second clip made me laugh out loud. And I was like, okay, I've got to put this. I've got to cut this 30 seconds out, throw it up on Twitter. And I did, and like, within hours, it was everywhere. It was insane. It was on ESPN. It was on the Soup Show. It was on these news sites. It was on Stephen Colbert. It was literally everywhere. Rolling Stone, Sports Illustrated. It was insane how viral this video went. There's no manual for that. There's no, oh, what to do when your video goes viral. So I was just trying to push it and capitalize on it as much as I can. I thought, you know what? I'm going to get a good two, three months out of this. But it just kept going and growing and no pun intended, growing. And still to this day and every few months, I'll hit another viral spin where I'll get tagged in a bunch. I'll get tagged in it a bunch of times. And I don't know who's posting that. I don't know who's posting it, that's new or whatever. And it'll just go crazy. One of the biggest things I ever got, everybody was saying like, oh, my family knows I'm a wrestling fan. So they, so it was like all these people were getting sent this clip. Well, for those who haven't heard of him, strap in because I'm about to tell you about the professional wrestler with magic penises once resurrected from the... It's important to stand out in wrestling and having a unique gimmick is a pretty good way to gain an audience, base and prom- prominence. Or notoriety. or notoriety. In the case of Ryan, it all started in 2015 with a faithful wrestling move known colloquially as a penis flip. Recently dubbed the U Porn Plex after Ryan earned a sponsorship with a pornography company. Yeah, need to say the ridiculous of the movement that Joey's self dubbed WrestleMania moment went viral and in the idea over a purist wrestling fans around the globe. That included wrestling critic Jim Cornette, who would later refer to Ryan as a putrid penis boy in a half-baked brown and serve roll covered in pubic hair. Just to give you an idea of the era, Ryan drew. Well, thankfully, he shook off the criticism and began incorporating his deadly strong penis into wrestling acts permanently. Pull off great feats of strength with it and even building his penis law. His dick became invulnerable as well, so any wrestler trying to cheap shot, dick kick or penis shot was immediately shut down. Ryan had balls of steel and nobody could best him. Until he died. In 2018, Ryan had been featured heavily in wrestling's YouTube show, Being Elite, which would follow the self-fictional uh, wrestling faction known as the Elite. One of the group, Hangman Page, had developed a fast Ryan after he was emasculated by him and his super strong penis during a wrestling match. Page started referring to Ryan as a penis pretender and became increasingly agitated and violent towards him. The only logical course of action was to murder him so page stuck into a room one night and beat him to death with a corded telephone well folks this is wrestling in episode 109 of being the elite ryan was declared dead and the funeral was held the prime suspect Stephen amell of arrow fame was quickly arrested by japanese police for the murder and page attempted to cover it up for several months afterward that dead ryan would continue to appear in independent wrestling shows sporadically but something was different something was ghoulish this wasn't Joey Ryan, this was his ghost, you see. 
His ghost even appeared at Wrestling Extravaganza Starcast. But in wrestling, death is not the end. And so after months of being dead, Ryan miraculously returned within the help of some mysterious penis druids. At Wrestling Pay-Per-View All-In, an event promoted by the Elite, Cody Rhodes and the Young Bucks, Hangman Page was facing off against party boy Joey Janela and had just pinned him to end the match when the lights went out. Eerie music played and the stage filled with the figures soon known as the Penis Druids. These mysterious beings eventually parted to reveal the figure of Ryan having escaped the clutches of death by some form of miracle. And so it was that Joe Ryan, the man with the mystical penis, was resurrected in the world of wrestling. Wrestling, or have rarely tuned in since the days of The Rock or Shawn Michaels, the concept of a penis pretender being resurrected by magical walking dicks might seem a touch ridiculous. And it is. But that's the point. Wrestling is ridiculous, and it can be a serious, heartbreaking, and fun. The joy in wrestling is seeing that variety, and I wouldn't have it any other way. God bless Joey Ryan's. Let's see him in action. I was going to have him against Orange Cassidy, but I don't think you're going to be a huge fan of that. So let's uh, go against Brands. Uh, Joey Ryan is known for a lot of things, and uh, of course, he's known for his intergender matches, of course, with Candice LeRae back in the day. And, of course, recently with Ken Shamrock, because I was a guy very viral. And we are seeing him very soon as well. Are you excited about going to see Joey Ryan, Dan? I am very excited about seeing Joey Ryan. But I'm more excited about being in the same room as his legendary, brought back from the dead, penis. So what is the difference between, like, an Orange Cassidy and a Joey Ryan in your head, then? <laughs> <laughs> Not a lot, to be honest. No? Um, I don't know. If, if I was told I could only have one in the world... It would be Joey Ryan. I think, you know, his his kind of gimmick, he, he was a wrestler before the gimmick, whereas it seems to me that Orange Cassidy kind of, like, adapted the gimmick as part of his wrestling. Yeah. You know what I mean? You know, he was, like, he was a porn star actor, and it was just something that kind of come about when he was rest- a Japanese character. And, yeah, you know, it's... Uh, I think Joey Ryan has talent other than the talent in his... Pants. I've no doubt he is a good worker and AEW and WWE were interested but uh, Joe Ryan decided to go with Impact and of course Joe Ryan's known about his lollipop he's already given one to the fan and now Brandy had one. Oh, and he puts the lollipop in his pants and Brandy with a DDT trying to take Ryan down but shoulder up at two two of course Brandy the uh, wife of Cody Rhodes she really isn't a wrestler is she? Uh, well that's why they put it with Awesome Kong, but she's got she's got the hair of Joey Ryan. She rips out the chest and sends her head sends Ryan head first again. Oh, it's Joey Ryan. And he seems happy about it. That's what I quite like about the character, you know, in the gender. Obviously he should have the advantage, but he always kinda does this, you know. And I don't think it's degrading to the women because he always gets his comeuppance the amount of matches that you see. <coughs> and Joey Ryan just licking her face. So who's your favourite porn star wrestler then? Is it Joey Ryan or Val Venus? Oh, it's got to be Joey Ryan, isn't it? I mean, look at that. You can you can definitely see the power right there, you know? And he's rubbing Brandy's face into the mat and now just caressing himself. He's fish hooking her now. <laughs> and if uh, if you've ever watched porn, I haven't, but that's quite a common move. Oh, is it? I... Yeah, apparently so. Por- porn? I, don't... I had to do uh, some research for it. <laughs> Brandy managed to get out of the submission and chopping away. But I don't think having much effect on Joey. He's going for the bootplex. <laughs> Brandy trying to go for a low blow. But she ends up limping away. What? Goes for another kick and she's limping about because uh, she's kicked the penis. That's going to have no effect. 
Oh! Crossroads. Uh, having a go at her husband. And Joe Ryan. So you can tell every single person in that crowd is waiting for the dick spot. <laughs> Uh-oh, another hand! Speaking of it, the hands of Brandy sent flying. One, two... No! Well, the U-Porn Plex. Well, how the hell did Brandy kick out? Ah. Uh-huh. Now, Joey Ryan looking underneath the ring, and it could be anything in the hands of this man. Like gummy bears. <laughs> Joey Ryan's going to hit Brandy Rose. That's song swaggle. Well, he's switched the bags that were there. Did that happen, or did it just drip out then? I'm sure that's all swaggle. Oh, wait a minute, that's not sweets. That's thumbtacks. Swoggle switched and Brandy nearly went into the thumbtacks. Oh, he's going to bulldog Joey Ryan. Here we go. Oh! <laughs> no, drops Brandy. Holy shit! We went from ridiculous. <laughs> Joey, Ryan, Joey Ryan just looking on. He said, I'm not going to take that bump. <laughs> oh my God, thousands of thumbtacks and now the lollipop. The lollipop that's been in the trunks. Into the mouth, but... Joey Ryan missed with a super kick. Now, Brandy with submission in. <laughs> and Brandy makes Joey Ryan tap out. So the new <laughs> champion, Brandy Rose. But what do you think of that? We had thumbtacks, we had lollipops, we um, had hornswoggle. Brandy Rose is absolutely fucking awful. She can't wrestle for shit. Um, the match, it was... You know, it was an intriguing, quite interesting match. Um, but, you know, it probably would have been a million times better if it was anyone but Brandy Rhodes. Yeah, but I tell you, it is fun, though, isn't it? It's been fun seeing Orange Cassidy and Joe Ryan. And even with Shikara and stuff like that, you know, being away from WWE and seeing how, how to have a little bit of fun in wrestling, you know. It doesn't have to be serious all the time. Uh, and up next, well, we're halfway through the list now. And we'll carry on. Up next is number five. Yes, it is Cameos uh, to YouTube, and we wanted to switch gears and take a look at future pro wrestling stars who made early appearances on television, not in the ring necessarily, but in extras roles. That includes suspiciously indie wrestler-looking security teams, police officers, big entrance props, or otherwise. You'd be surprised how many people you'd recognise got their starts like this. And that's not counting the dozens who played Undertaker Druids with their faces covered or dressed up like spooky skeletons for a Triple H WrestleMania entrance. Okay, so here are the 10 plus wrestling stars that made their start as extras. Make sure you just... Oh, fuck. Okay, so here we go. We start off with Diamond Dallas Page as a chauffeur. Well, it's hard to recognise him, but yes, that's future WWE Hall of Famer and three-time WCW World Heavyweight Champion DDP driving the Honky Tonk Man... Jimmy Hart, Greg Valentine, and some sock hop ladies to the ring in a pink Cadillac at WrestleMania 6. That was his Cadillac, by the way, and he credits having the right car for him getting a spot at WrestleMania years before he came a superstar. Well, future stars popping up as extras at WrestleMania entries has become a time honored tradition at this point, and we're able to scratch the surface, but let's make sure to include a couple you might be thinking of off the top of your head, like CM Punk, the Chicago gangster. Well, before defeating him for the WWE Championship at Money in the Bank 2011 and blowing a kiss to Vince McMahon in one of the most iconic moments of the decade, CM Punk was one of John Cena's faux gangsters for his WrestleMania 22 entrance in Chicago. 
If you're having trouble spotting him, he's the one that absolutely does not look like a Chicago gangster from the 1930s. You get a great close-up of him as well, didn't you? You actually do see him on the kind of car. You've got a lovely entrance. There's a bunch of cartoon gangsters creeping around the ring with Tommy guns like they're trying to avoid being seen. Lee Cena gets to shoot his fake gun. Punk would end up qualifying for the Money in the Bank ladder match at WrestleMania 23 a year later and would qualify again at WrestleMania 24. From there, it was uphill and no one would ask him to ride side on car. At the old times, he ganks him a bill again. <coughs> um, up next is Sasha Banks, Alexa Bliss and Charlotte Flair, Conan admirers. Yeah, while well, Punk had the most memorable WrestleMania entrance cameo of the Raw in 20s, the most memorable cameo from the WrestleMania 30s has to be NXT stars Alexa Bliss, Sasha Banks and Charlotte Flair falling over Conan the Destroyer play at WrestleMania 30. It's still one of the best WrestleMania entrances ever, especially since all the dramatic music, ridiculous pomp and circumstance contrasted brilliantly with Daniel Bryan's simplicity and minimalism. Minimalism. It's also got to be the most decorated WrestleMania entrance ever, not counting the entire NXT roster playing skeletons a few years later, I guess. But as it includes two NXT and 19 main roster championships among the Barbarian Girls, also the great Alexa Bliss turning this entrance on its head. Also the great Charlotte Flair turning this entrance on its head at WrestleMania 34 and assuming the role of Conan for herself. We've got John Moxley as a Druid. Who? John Moxley. Who? Dean Ambrose. Oh! Well, it's hard to spot most Undertaker Druid cameos, but it's easy to find Dean Ambrose's during Undertaker's surprise appearance at the end of Royal Rumble 2006. Taker shows up riding a chariot pulled by a pale horse to destroy Kurt Angle's celebration with lightning. Some subtle symbolism, and yep, there's Ambrose bearing a torch to Taker's right. Seven years later, the two would go one on one on April 26, 2013, edition of SmackDown, one of Taker's last televised matches on weekly TV as a regular. Maybe one day we'll wonder what mean Mark Reaper is doing in all elite zone, probably. Well, up next, we've got the Young Bucks in Degeneration Me. So on it, the Bucks play a parody versions of Degeneration X, so John Morrison and the fedora-wearing version of The Miz can make fun of and beat them up. The moment you're going to want to see happens when Morrison assumes them that the dirt sheet isn't about lame attempts at humour. We don't do fart jokes or tired catchphrases. We are the elite or of the elites. Elite, you say? Well, Sean Spears is Stan. If you remember the PG Old Man version of DX from the mid-2000s, you probably remember this segment from Cyber Sunday 2006 featuring Stan, an old man and prediction assistant who gets super kicked in the face by Shawn Michaels. Stan as Sean Spears, the man who wrapped a chair around Cody's heads at Fighter Fest. Before that, you recognised him as Ty Dillinger, the man who loved to count to... So much he dropped literally every other aspect of his life and personality to do so full time. Between gigs, I'm guessing he wrote a bunch of fan letters to Eminem, then drove off a bridge with his girlfriend in a trunk. She was pregnant with his kid. (laughs) Shit, it was it was you. Uh, Seamus and Wade Barrett security in the mid 2000s DX were really great for future star cameos, I guess. For example, when security shows up to stop them from brawling with rated RKO on the November 13th, 2000 edition of Raw. You can spot future W champion Sheamus as one of the goons. Is it weird to anybody else to see Sheamus wearing normal clothes? I'm so used to um, excuse seeing him in the gym clothes, wrestling trunks, beard, braids, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle outfits, or festive for- Forest King Club process him in a polo tucked into slacks. Also making an appearance in that group of security jerks because... The show was taped in Manchester, England. England. It's none other than future NXT rookie and Nexus leader from Wade Barrett, 
Seen here getting some bad news from Triple H. We've got some bad news. Well, both men would get tryouts shortly after their appearance and get signed, giving us two of the most can't-miss prospects for late 2000s WWE developmental. EC Ferrero as police officers. Continuing on the DX reunion tip, check out more suspects extras from 2006 trying to get in Triple H and Shawn Michaels' face. This time you'll spot Cesaro back when he had hair and was calling himself Claudio Casanogli and a pre-NXT, pre-Derek Bateman, EC3. Well, Cesaro would, of course, go on to hold the United States Championship six-time champions, tag team champions so far, and the Andre the Giant Memorial Battle Royal Trophy. EC3 would leave NXT to become a two-time World Heavyweight Champion in Impact Wrestling before returning to the company in 2018. And he's done fuck all since. Yes. Uh, we've got MVP as a police officer. <laughs> We're all going to have people like Johnny Gargano, Cedric Von Hausen, who uh, appeared against MVP as well. Speaking of MVP, in the Kurt Angle Invitational segment from 2005, that Roderick Strong, Kurt Angle brought in police officers to guard his Olympic gold medal. Kurt Angle won an Olympic gold medal. I don't know if you heard it or not. Anyway, those police officers were D-South Wrestling's Antonio Brown, who eventually come to know as future tag team and two-time United States champion, MVP, a.k.a. If you've never seen it, you can watch... You just watch the video on YouTube. You fucking check it out. It's great. Yeah. Well, basically, every Rose... Finally, this week... uh, uh, Up next, we have the Rosebuds, the group of drag-addled partygoers who followed Adam Rhodes around both on and off the Exotic Express. Lots of people played Rosebud characters. If you weren't around for Rose, just imagine No Way Jose's conga line plus ecstasy. Um, the you know, there's pictures going round, and it's got the most famous rosebuds, with the exception of maybe Veronica Lane, who wrestled briefly in interview for NXT. Everybody rosebud in the shot had a bigger WWE career than Adam Rose. Okay, so just in this one picture, we've got Carmella, former SmackDown Women's Champion and Mixed Match Challenge, Mixed Match Challenge winner. We've got Dana Brooke, who you know, even if she hadn't won a ton of things, because she's going to be shagging. Uh, Dave Batista yeah, soon. at least she doesn't walk alone. Uh, Tucker Knight, currently one half of Heavy Machinery. Becky Lynch, WrestleMania main eventer and wildly popular multiple-time champion. Simon Gotch, former NXT Tag Team Champion and one half of all villains and hates Enzo More. That's, that's his biggest accomplishment. Elias, also known as the guitar-playing douche. you got Braun Strowman, Monster Among Buds. Uh, other Rose Buds who went on to become wrestlers you've heard of include Scarlet Bordeaux. Taylor Hendricks, Jimmy Jacobs, Sammy Callahan, Solomon Crow, Jeremiah Goddamn Snake, James Ellsworth, Kalisto, and Alexis, Alexa Bliss. Yeah, so this is ridiculous indeed. We just we've got Roderick Strong now coming out to uh, face Kurt Angle. MVP is one of the police officers there as well. Yeah, the most famous one I think is Tommaso Ciampa. He comes down looking like an IRS <laughs> ripoff. I mean. <laughs> You know him nowadays as a man having a big beard and no hair. Well, imagine if the big beard was on his head. He was wearing a suit and he was carrying an IRS-like briefcase down to the ring. It's almost like the most, it's the opposite of what he is now. And he even looks in a weird way. He doesn't look like a, a professional wrestler as it was. If you tell me that man would go out to be one of the best competitors NXT has ever seen, I would tell you to fuck off. Yeah, I, I would also agree. I mean, this is crazy that we're looking at this in 2004, like 15 years ago. Yeah. I wonder what Trump is about Goldie as he gets the microphone. Daddy's home. 
Oh, so this is about that then. He's basically being uh, Mohammed Hassan's lawyer. Yeah, Mohammed Hassan did a terrorist thing, didn't he? The angle on SmackDown during when we had the terrorist attack here in England. And he decided to write that storyline. So apparently he was going to be WWE champion at one point. They were going to go for Mohammed Hassan. And then I think the Undertaker last um, rided him through the stage. I mean, Chumper just looks like a fucking idiot in this one, though. Yeah, again, you know, I, would, I wouldn't say he'd go on to have a few of the best matches I've seen. But at least he got to mingle with the Undertaker, which I suppose is a bonus for him. My client. Well, just as uh, Mohammed Hassan's lawyer, Tommaso Chumper, was speaking, <laughs> the lights go out and the Undertaker's dongs hit. I beg your pardon? Dong. Oh, yeah, dong. Sorry, yeah, I thought you meant... Joey Ryan style. <laughs> Thomas Whitney Esquire. So there we go. We've got the absolute legend in the sport, a man defined for what he's done for their brand that he's been on and The Undertaker. <laughs> in this one, Tommaso Ciampa. And I mean, it is ridiculous when you think how they're used. And this is what makes wrestling so different. People get serious. That you can have different, because you can't, you know, Untake used to be me, Mark Callis, back in the day. You know, and I'm sure he wouldn't might have been a member of security guard or, or someone. Like he could have been the Eggman, which might have made the list as well. You know, it's just the breaks it takes. And Chumper, it took so long to get into the WWE. And yes, it's ridiculous, but I'm sure for him, it's definitely worthwhile. So what do you reckon now? Is it going to be Ch- Chokestone or Tombstone? Uh, Chokestone. Chokestone. I'm saying a Tombstone. <coughs> Well, the Undertaker's got him round the throat, and he might be a lawyer, not a wrestler. He just but took a good choke slam. He took a very good choke slam. But, you know, going back and watching this uh, as it happens, would you look at Tommaso Chopper and think one day he's going to be one of the most biggest names in wrestling? No, you wouldn't. And that is the, that is the ridiculous thing about this. Someone like Mohammed Hassan, you know, with a feud ending, and yet there's Chopper, a guy who said he'd be leading the way. 15 years <laughs> later as he's going to get chokeslammed and tombstoned. So I was right. Yeah. He got stoned. He got chokeslammed. He got tombslammed by The Undertaker. Well, we've seen uh, both members of the DIY. One of them was wearing lederhose yeah. and going against MVP. The other one was getting chokeslammed and tombstoned by The Undertaker. But nonetheless, they still became huge, huge successes. Yeah, without a doubt. So let's move on to number four. On the list, and it's outside WWE again, and it's DDT. Well, Dramatic Dream Team, the largest independent pro wrestling promotion in Japan, pulled off one of its most ambitious events ever. Sanshiro Takagi, DDT's promoter and one of its top stars, headlined the Tokyo Dome against New Japan pro wrestling star Minoru Suzuki. However, there were two key differences from other wrestling shows at the Tokyo Dome, NJPW's Wrestle Kingdom, the dome was not just in its baseball configuration with the field exposed, but was also completely empty. No tickets were sold and no fin. And like most of what DDT does, it was completely ridiculous in the best way possible. Celebrating its 20th anniversary that year, DDT is probably the best known for its West Full of Viral videos and gifts that spawned over the years. There's current NJPW star Kenny Mega wrestling a little girl while representing DDT. Kota Ibushi wrestling a black doll that we're going to watch. An invisible man wrestling a hill thwarted by a friendship montage flashback sequence. The same match having a referee stop his count when he had his own friendship montage flashback sequence involved a wrestler who's being pinned. Joey Ryan using his strong American penis to win a test of strength. 
a ladder winning a title, the ladder having a retirement ceremony, and probably more that I'm forgetting. It's not for everyone, and there's a heavy emphasis on offbeat comedy, but Dinty also has the most robust talent development program in Japanese wrestling, which produced some incredible performances the more serious main event matches. Well, the MT Dome match was broadcast live on DDT Universe. The promotion streaming service and the first half was posted to DDT's official YouTube channel to help draw in new subscriptions. Yes, there's an English sign-up guide. As of this writing, the YouTube video is closing in on 50,000 views, quickly making it one of the most popular videos in the channel's lifetime. Well, Tagaki vs Suzuki is part of DDT's Street Wrestling series, which promotion started around 2008. They start matches regularly once every couple of months, said uh, Jamie O'Doherty of the Dramatic DDT fan site. It says so the matches are synced to a DDT now, and the more out there ideas like the train match, a Raw Rumble and a moving train where a new wrestler enters at every stop, and the dome match are great ways to grab attention at least from the end. Over the course of an hour, Taggy and Suzuki joined by numerous wrestlers from DDT and elsewhere, making cameos broad throughout the Kavanaugh's building with the baseball diamond serving as the ring. Seemingly the entire match was designed with the production and distribution of the animated gifts on social media in mind, and it's an incredibly fun piece of offbeat wrestling comedy. Well, Suzuki's involvement in DDT over the years is, in and itself, funny even before he actually starts doing any comedy. Originally trained by NJPW in the late 80s, he quickly quit the company to join the UWF, which marketed itself as essentially real pro wrestling and helped found Pancrace, which really was mostly pro wrestling. When accumulated injuries ended his career as a real fighter in 2002, he returned to his roots doing gimmick gimmick of essentially the anti-pro wrestler. His offence was mostly MMA-inspired. He would refuse to cooperate with Irish whips and he showed disdain for titles he won by carrying tiny action figure-sized versions instead of the real deal. So it's quite striking when you see Suzuki in DDT, whether he's wrestling a mummy robot or cosplaying as various wrestling legends. Well, even with a heavy focus on comedy and the weirdness, though, one of the main reasons that DDT works so well is it takes itself serious. The ridiculousness is completely straight. When Suzuki, for example, pantomimes walking through the ring ropes as he steps over the baseline, there's no overt winking at the audience. He's just as grumpy and stone-faced looking here as he is wrestling Kajuki Okada in the main event of the NJPW card. DDT is legitimately is a universe. Colorado-based indie wrestler and DDT regular Royce Isaacs told Deadspin, everything is congregant. What mean? What that means is everything makes sense, even if it's the weirdest you've ever seen. It's all inside of a universe where actions have repercussions. Sometimes you'll see two characters interact on a wrestling show and it's not very natural or normal or something seems out of place. In DDT, everything is part of this universe. I think that's why you can watch something like that and not be like, why is that guy breaking people's arms with his butt? Or why is that guy throwing people with his penis? If you're watching it and you're in that universe, you get it and everything is in context. Underneath all the comedy, DDT is one of the most remarkable success stories in all of professional wrestling. Launched in 97 by Tagiki, it spent its first five or six years in one of the many lower-tier Japanese independent promotions. While Japan has an incredibly healthy indie scene with solid visibility thanks to satellite television channels like Gara Sports and Samurai TV, DDT was not at its level for its first several years, but since the launch of DDT Universe, it's gone from strength to strength. I think it's easy to go, DDT is the comedy promotion, said Isaacs. DDT is just a promotion with the most variety. It's the reason why Kenny Omega, Kota Ibushi, El Generico, who's Sami Zayn, and Colt Cabana have all come through DDT at some point. You know what I mean? Kenny and Kota carved out their names there, and now they're the two biggest wrestling stars in the entire world. 
inside WWE or out. I don't think DDT gets enough credit for finding and cultivating talent. It's an obvious thing, but it's easy to brush it off as it's comedy or the funny guys. Well, there's an amazing amount of comedy. Some of the most creative, funniest wrestling you'll ever see, but at the same time, there's some of the best wrestlers in the world, bar none. And there's a very famous saying, is that a great wrestler can have a match with a, br- a broomstick and it'll still be great, or an animate object. And they proved it, because Kota Ibushi, a man who is legitimately a fantastic wrestler, Dan, he was your pick in the Cruiserweight Classic, wasn't he? He was indeed, yes. And it just shows you the success he has, and he's fighting a blow-up doll in this match for DDT. That looks like one of your ex that blow-up I doll. know, it looks a lot like her. Didn't you get rid of yours, because it went down on you? It, <laughs> it went up on me, that was a problem. Now Kota Ibushi, oh my God, gets suplexed. Does this take away some of the magic? Are we seeing behind the curtain here too much of how wrestling actually works? Um, I mean, not in this way as a doll going over the top, but... Oh, my God! A man kind of dressed in a latex body morph suit kind of came in and threw the doll over the top rope. But, you know, um, I'm sure everyone, you know, every wrestling fan, when they was younger, kind of wrestled their pillow or wrestled, you know, something... Yeah reminiscent of a wrestler you know and this is just Kota Ibushi doing it and performing well in a ring yeah, we got pile drive and then this is just the highlights of course and now he's going to try this the swing maybe can't get her over shot to the midsection and now here we go swing and he's got the Cesaro swing going <laughs> and he's building up some speed he just throws a blow up doll falls down because he's dizzy oh my god now head scissors Oh my god, I've never seen that before. Front face power bomb. <laughs> and now he's got the submission on. <laughs> now the blow up doll with the roll up. <laughs> Getting a two count. Two. Can I just point out that this is better than any Enzo Amore match I have ever seen in my life? <laughs> well, the doll now is in control. Destroyer! Oh my Double god. destroyer, treble destroyer! <laughs> Quadruple destroyer. Oh, my God. Seven, eight, nine. It could do the ten. He's going for the cover. No, Ibushi managing to kick out. <laughs> How much kind of athleticism it takes. Now, caught the full Nelson. <laughs> <laughs> Got a call with a suplex. Two, nine. No. <laughs> you don't see that a lot. No, not another one. No, Ibushi managing to block it with a couple of elbows. And a huge clothesline lariat. Referee <laughs> checking. <laughs> now the doll's in position. A huge set-out powerbomb. He's not finished there. It's actually a really good match. Co- it is, yeah. Kobushi going up, and again, that man from earlier has got the doll up on top. <laughs> Isn't it to cut Ibushi off? Oh, my God, and it's very precarious on top there. Ibushi with the forearms. <laughs> oh, my God, Ibushi got the doll up on his shoulders. Off the top. Oh, <laughs> fucking hell. Is that like a razor's edge? Oh, but going on the apron. Uh, it's not escape for long, no. <laughs> Fuck was that? Springboard German. No, but the doll managing to kick out. <laughs> this is awesome. And Bushi wants to end it. And I think he can put the doll away. Oh, Phoenix splash. One, two, three. And Ibushi gets the victory in, you know, take away from the fact that he was wrestling a blow-up doll. That was an amazing showcase of what Kota Ibushi can bring to it. And it's, again, it's something that 
was very good for this, you know, for one show, but I couldn't watch, you know, this fucking blood. I'll have matches with various people. I think it's only a certain kind of calibre of wrestler that can actually pull that kind of match off. I agree, but that, I, I love that kind of shit. My only thing is, for me, it's interesting to see how much wrestlers actually do when they take moves themselves, if you know what like I mean. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, so when you're watching something with NXT, you realise it's actually the guy, you know, taking the move is doing half as much work as like That is, that is yeah. very true, but it's... I don't mind it. Yeah, no, I mean, it just goes to show how hard wrestlers work during matches. Yeah, and speaking of hard, we'll move on to our next one at number three, and it's Jeff Gaylord. Well, born in Columbus, Ohio, Gaylord played as a defensive lineman for the Missouri Tigers while attending the University of Missouri and eventually became an All-American in 81. He later borrowed the team name for his wrestling nickname. Well, making his professional wrestling debut in 1985, he began wrestling in the Mid-South Area of the Federation, facing Timothy Flowers, Tarzan Goto, and Kevin the Magnificent in February 1986. During the summer, he also feuded with the Russian team, facing Ivan and Nikita Koloff and Krosita Kuchenko in a six-man tag team match with Ken Macy and Perry Jackson as well, with Percy Jackson... Perry Jackson, even, and Brett Wayne Sawyer against Kuchenko and the Blade Runners on June 8th. He also teamed with Ken Macy against Rick Steiner and Jack Victory at the Tulsa Convention Centre in Tulsa, Oklahoma on August 17th, 1987. Well, facing Buddy Landau and the Angel of Death during the next few months, he later appeared on the UWF Superdome Extravaganza Supercard, defeating Art Cruz uh, at the Superdome in New Orleans, Louisiana on November 27th, '86. He would later lose to one-man gang in the opening rounds of the UWF-PWI tournament the following month. During the next year, he would face Eli the Eliminator and with Jeff Rakes against Sting and Rick Steiner. He would later lose to Rick Steiner in a singles match at the Sam Houston Coliseum on January 23rd, 87. Well, during 1989, Gaylord will also appear on the WF Wrestling Challenge team with Tim Horner against the Fabulous Rougeos. And on April 16th, before returning to world-class championship wrestling, faces veterans such as Jimmy Jack Funk and Kerry Von Erich. Well, WCCW in 89-91, wrestling for world-class championship wrestling as the masked wrestler, the Hood, during the late 1980s. He would become a mainstay in the area and briefly feuded with Jeff Jarrett, that's J-E-F-F-J-A-R-R-E, double T, and Bill Dundee, later teaming with stunning Steve Austin, Gary Young, and Scandor Akbar in an eight-man Texas Tornado match, losing to Jeff Jarrett, Bill Dundee, Eric Embry, and Percy Pringle in early 1990. Yeah, Percy Pringle, Paul Bearer. During this time, he was involved in an occasion with Eddie Gilbert at Dallas Wrestling Event in which Gaylord allegedly sucker-punched Gilbert during an argument in Gilbert's dressing room at the Dallas Auditorium. The two began fighting until it was broken up by Doug Gilbert, who assaulted Gaylord with a Coke bottle. Although Gaylord had been speaking to Gilbert regarding the possibility of being booked in Gilbert's promotion, Gilbert claimed in a shoot interview that Gaylord was paid $1,000 by a North Eastern promoter to assault him after Gilbert fell sharp for an event. He then went on to fight for United States Wrestling Association, 91-95. Memphis area later that year, he lost to USWA heavyweight champion Jerry the King Lawler by disqualification on November the 4th. And the following week, teams with the Big O fighting to a double disqualification against Lawler and Dundee on November 11th. After losing to Bill Dundee and the Spirit of America on November 18th, Gaylord was absent from the promotion for several weeks before returning to face Jerry Lawler fighting him several times during an event on December 28th, 91. Okay, so let's see versus Jeff Gaylord. And uh, do you like the looks of Gaylord, Dan? Gaylord looks ripped. Gaylord looks... <sighs> I mean, the king 
won't back down from a gay lord, but you know, here he's he's big man. You know, would you? Is that a mullet? That is a beautiful mullet. That is a mullet among man men. Ultimate warriorish with the arms and the, the the tassels, the tassels behind him. I mean, Gaylord's a real up and comer. I mean, even though he's had problems in the past, I'm sure he won't have trouble in the future as he catches a king. And Gaylord's caught him now. You're never sure when Gaylord's coming, but you can see it in his eyes. No, from what I've heard, Gaylord is always on top. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a bit really. I mean, he's got he's got a uh, tunnel vision, hasn't he? Really, in this match. He's not going to go out the back door, you know. No, no, it's all right going toe-to-toe with with Gaylord, but when he comes from behind, he comes hard. Yeah, no doubt. And um, let's not forget, of course, you know, Gaylord's upbringing as well. Well, I mean, we we get away with it, hopefully, because of Mark Tardis. If he backs us up, if we get greed, everything's fine. Indeed, yes. And Gaylord's not backing down in the corner. I'm sure Mark Tardis would have heard of Gaylord before. He might have heard of Gaylord. Jeff Gaylord, very famous wrestler. Coming back now on Jerry the King Lawler. Is that Michael Hayes' referee? <laughs> no, it's not. So if Jerry the King Lawler was on the top turnbuckle, would Gaylord pull him off? I think he, he's looking to pull him off now. Well, he's getting choked. He can't breathe at the moment. He's choking him so bad. Hit him right at the back of the throat. That's where, that's where the King's looking for. Oh, my God. Now his manager sticking something down his throat as well. You don't want to put anything down a Gaylord's throat. Well, you don't like Sid, do you? No. I mean, this is kind of like a gang banging him at this moment in time in this match. Gaylord now sent him to the top. <laughs> is it me or does that ring post look a bit phallic? <laughs> it does. It does, not it? It's got a little helmet to it. I can say Gaylord is not packing. <laughs> no, no he, he, he certainly is no Alex Wright. <laughs> Gaylord sent to the outside. And the King going about his business. And it's weird, the King's still wrestling to this day. Yeah, and Gaylord's now getting bashed off. Well, you wait to find out what happened to Gaylord. And now the chair, gone. his head hurt, my head must hurt, like the top of it as well. Well, his head has taken quite a lot of pounding. And they've gone outside the ring, which is always but tough. Gaylord likes it better in the ring, I've heard. Yeah, I'm <laughs> fighting around it. Gaylord has finally entered the ring. And now the king with the right hand. Gaylord's down. Doesn't look good for him. Well, Gaylord's don't stay down for long, though. No. I've heard they get up pretty quickly. They can especially come, if, you know. Especially if another man's involved, Gaylord's get up really quickly. Oh, my God, he avoided the fist. You've got to be someone to be fisted by the king in this match. No, Gaylord avoided getting fisted. But Gaylord's now fisting the king. He is. A, bit a like, few times in the head. Bit of light of fingering. And he's going low. <laughs> oh, no. hip toss to the king. <laughs> but Gaylord's still in this one. Yeah, he's got the king on top now. He's got him on his shoulders. He's spinning round. Gonna put his leg behind his head. And he spins him right round. Baby, right round. Oh no, the referee gets involved. Oh, the referee gets knocked down by the legs of the king. Oh no. And he manages to toss King off into the manager. And the manager took took the full load of that on his face. <sighs> and the referee got maybe called for the bell. Gaylord's still in this. Well, Gaylord's certainly a chubby chaser. Well he doesn't mind the size of you. And this is the big, big man he's going after. Oh, yeah, he's, he's really wide. Oh, no, King rolled him up. It's well, still the legal. King from behind, pulling Gaylord's tights down. Oh, my God. Gets the victory. Managed to pull one out. <laughs> he managed to sneak it in. The victory. <laughs> well, there you go, Dan. Jeff Gaylord. And I might need a second to um, recompose myself uh, as we continue to talk about his career. But there was, there was an action. <clears throat> 
Well, defeat Candy January 6th, he spent several months in the Puerto Rico-based American Wrestling Federation winning the AWF International Tag Team titles with Sunny Beach before returning later that year, teaming with Mr. Hughes to defeat Jerry Lawler and Jeff Jarrett. That's J-E-F-F-J-A-R-R-E-T on September the 21st. On November 24th, he would also make a pay-per-view appearance at the WF 93 Survivor Series as the Black Knight along with a Red Knight and a Blue Knight against the Hart family and the latter pinned by Earth Man Eliminated. Although originally scheduled to be captained by Jeremy King Lawyer, Shawn Michaels was named as last-minute replacement due to Lawyer's legal problems preventing him from appearing in the WWF. He got accused of um, raping a minor. Well, returning to the USWA, he and Mike Anthony defeated PG-13 for the USWA Tag Team Championship on November 29th, although they would later lose the titles a week later to the War Machines on D3, and no, James, not them War Machines, War Raiders. Viking. Viking experience. experience. Losing to Doug Gilbert and Johnny Ferdy managed to defeat Del Rios, not Alberto Del Rios. However, he later lost to Skull Von Clash on January 24th, fought to a time limit draw with Reggie B. on Reggie B. Fine on January 31st. After a loss to Coco Beware on February 7th, he teamed with Spellbinder and King Cobra, defeating Skull Von Crush and the Nightmares at Supercard Memphis Memories on March 7th, and later defeated Skull Von Crush on March 14th. He won a battle royal on July 25th for losing to Sid Vicious late that night. He would later team with King Kong Bundy losing to Sid Vicious and Spike Cuba on August 1st, 1994. Remaining with the promotion during its last years, he lost to the Gambler by disqualification in his last appearance on May 15th, 55. After leaving the USWA, Gaylord began wrestling for the American Federation and later teamed with the Warlord, fighting disqualification with Hercules Hernandez and Mr. Hughes. So it would be the Gaylord Warlord. This would later several other teams to advance the second round, including Wildfire, Tommy Rich and Greg the Hammer Valentine, eventually going to defeat Coco Beware and Mr. USA Tony Atlas in the tournament finals. Gaylord also wrestled on November 28th, Night Night 4 tape in WWE Saturday night, where he defeated Rip Rogers. You don't want to be ripped by Rogers, I suppose. No, he ripped Rogers and then Gaylord him. So, but then what happened? Well, James, criminal convictions. What? In October 2001, Gaylord robbed a bank in Aura, Colorado of $5,000. Then, in February, he robbed the same bank branch. This time, his license plate number was written down and a high-speed chase resulted, which resulted in Gaylord being taken into custody. He pleaded guilty to two counts of bank robbery and was sentenced to two consecutive terms of 78 months. Mike, well, Gaylord is out now. And <laughs> We're still going. I mean, there's two more moments that are more ridiculous than that. That is unbelievable, really, when you think about it. Um, and, of course, we'll have a recap before we get to the number one spot. But number two, two is Fantasio. Another entry to the one-and-done category, Fantasio is one of the most peculiar superstars in WWE history. Harry Del Rio, supposedly the first-ever wrestler to be signed to a developmental deal, had wrestled in the Memphis USWA territory as Brian Damage. Brain Damage? Brian, Brian Damage. Yeah. When he got the call to join the WWF roster. Well, he was a big jacked-up guy, six foot three and around seven, 275 pounds of muscle, and wasn't all that bad in the ring. He probably could have had a decent run in the company had the gimmick of his hand had not completely killed his credibility from the off. Well, his first mistake was being a real-life amateur magician. Obviously, something that Vince McMahon couldn't pass up. So he made it his act. Making his debut on WWE Superstars July 16th, 95, Fantasio came out of the ring wearing a mask and performing a couple of magic tricks 
such as making smoke come out of his hat and smell the money. God damn, go out there and move <laughs> magic, damn it. Well, a match a typical squash do opposite future ECW star Tony DeVito had a novel, well, embarrassing finish with Fantasio getting a win after removing his opponent's underwear. Then after the match, he removed Earl Hebner's too because the joke was even funnier the second time round. And that was it for Fantasio. He never made another televised WWE appearance again, which, according to a 2006 interview with Del Rios, was because The Undertaker thought the character was too closely to his own. Fantasing, embalming, well, it's all the same, really. Yeah, I doubt that is true. So let's watch this. This is not available on the network, so we've had to scour YouTube for this, and it is Fantasio's debut. And just step back and be ready to be amazing. Here he comes already. <gasps> he had a stick of fire, and he turned it into a cane. And not... Cane! cane! It's cane! But how did he do that? I, I don't believe... This guy is spooky coming out here well he's got a top hat and tails with him and like i said he looks to be serious oh my god how did he do that well just fire erupted from his hat it was a early version of kane kane and now it looks like farouk in a mask if i'm gonna be oh when did that come from just like this string like spider-man just come out and scared the hell out of the uh his opponent hypnot takedown followed by a second you can see the magic hands. Well, how, how, there's no, you know, he's not wearing a, a top, so I don't know how he can do all the magic. And Fantasia, I mean, I'm surprised WWE haven't brought him back since. Who doesn't like a black man in white face? Huh? I know, I mean, you know, you know. With all the racist things I've ever seen. <laughs> I don't know if this should be all ridiculous or controversial now we're watching this. I mean, you know. Have you seen a... Yes, yes, yeah, we'll be... <laughs> I know. Some people just help themselves, can they? So, but sometimes you are stuck with a gimmick that you can't, you can't beat. Indeed, yes. A huge shoulder block takedown by Phantasmo. Oh, now a slam as well. I mean, given the right circumstances, this character could potentially work. There is something about that that could make happen, but I don't think during this time. And he's ripped off his opponent's underwear, rolled him up, free. And got the victory. Well, yeah, you go throw him away. You don't want to keep him. And now Fantasio going over to El Hebner as well. Oh, my God. And El Hebner. Was it a T-shirt he'd smuggled down? No. It was his boxers. He wears striped boxers. Well, of course, he's referee. Don't want to forget that. And uh, Fantasio. Impressive match. You know, it wasn't uh, a sk- it's something, I think, a gimmick that could actually work. How so? I don't, you know, obviously a, um, a modern-day version of it. Of course, but, you know, a, a magician-type gimmick. Yeah. It's, you know, aside from that, what else is there? Well, that is right. It's, you know, illusionist or something like yeah. this, you know. <laughs> We've seen his top ten moves. Let's not forget the hat, shoulder block. The web stuff, the trifecta arm drag, which is basically a trifecta of arm drag takes down while doing magic hands. But like I said, illusion or something like this maybe could work, but maybe the Untaker did say... You know, maybe we're not, we're not, I don't want this because you're just too goddamn talented. And we move on to the arm wrench. That's probably the best thing of the match. Oh, no, the, the running shoulder block was quite good as well. I mean, I did get uh, excited. Then follow that up with a scoop slam, James. Yeah, but not just one though, Dan, was it? No, it was two. Two. And then, James, the inverted atomic drop. Ah, very, very dangerous move for this time. Followed by the underwear wrench. Who can forget? 
And a schoolboy pen. There you go. So that is Fantasio. But like I said it's a gimmick, maybe quite, but it is definitely the most ridiculous. And it's so ridiculous, WWE Network has nothing to do with it. So that's it. So let's just run through the uh, top 10 again. So number 10 was WCW, uh, a gift that keeps on giving. And of course, that was the Dungeon of Doom. Um, number 9 was the unforgettable Hillary Clinton versus Barack the bat rock obama shikara was number eight and of course all the madness there with colt cabana and co joey ryan the uh orange cassidy was number seven and then joey ryan was number six uh number five was cameos um you know you saw the likes of tomaso chomper getting chokeslammed and tombstoned by the undertaker and uh johnny gagano wearing later hose number four was of course ddt with kota bushi fighting the uh blow-up doll Number three was Jeff Gaylord. And number two, of course, Fantasio, who we just saw. And now on to number one. Yes, and I don't think it gets any more ridiculous than this. It is now time. Don't reveal the name. Just re- start reading for it. All right. All right. We'll just start from... Just In... leave the suspense. In 2000, after filming the World Championship Wrestling movie, Ready to Rumble... He made his first appearance on the t- April 2012-2000 episode of Thunder, sitting in the crowd for leaping into the ring to take part for work confrontation with Eric Bischoff and his new blood stable. Afterwards, he formed an alliance with Chris Canyon and then reigning WCW World Heavyweight Champion DDP. And with their help, he defeated Bischoff in a singles match in the April 24th episode of Nitro. On the following episode of Thunder, a team with Paige in a match against Bischoff and Jeff Jack, that's J E double F J A double R E double T, with a stipulation, stipulation that whichever man got the pin would take the world championship. So this is the match we're going to watch. And now, yes, this is our number one moment. This is the most ridiculous moment in, I think, wrestling history would be right to say. Well, David Arquette is kind of, uh, he's famous for marrying Courtney Cox. And that is about it. But we'll see if he can wrestle or not. You know, we'll find, of course, available. On WWE Network, Kate, so you can see this moment. And Jeff Jarrett's been featured quite a lot in this list as well. I mean, he he had he he caused, um, rubbed shoulders with Gaylord, didn't he? He did, yes. He did enter the ring with Gaylord. Yes, <laughs> he did. And Bischoff looks older then than he does now, so it just shows you how difficult WWE was at this point. The ridiculous WWE was on a reason a downward spiral. We've seen it at Starcade uh, '99. This is near enough. Uh, Five months later, and this is what they uh, resulted to. Jeff Jarrett and... <laughs> so here comes DDP, the World Heavyweight Champion. We were pretty banged up. David Arquette, and of course, Courtney Cox earlier having a go at him. He kind of did a bang properly. Yeah, he's a little bit scared of the promo as well. I like that. <laughs> we haven't seen that, have Yeah, we? not in a while. Look at that. They clear the ring. And WWE at this point, just awful. And we see what happened on Nitro Monday night in a cage match. And a cage match interference. Fantastic idea, WCW. That's what a cage match is all about. And a week-long world title reign. How did WCW go under? I just don't know. You know, I just don't, I don't know. I have no idea. I mean, I what better way <laughs> to celebrate a company than giving um, an actor I, they're your world, not, they're not, world title? They're not going to do that, surely. Well, don't call me Shirley. I mean, David Arquette in wrestling, I see look at all the empty seats as well. It's probably the worst thing, but they, they, they can't. Well, no, them seats was full. 
<laughs> until David Arquette came out the curtain and they was just like, nah, fuck this. What do you think about celebrities in wrestling? Is there a way to do it that works? I think um, the way WWE done it with their celebrity um, kind of... Like, oh, with their celebrity... Uh, with their celebrity GM, general managers, I think that's an interesting and good way to do it. But, you know, it's... I don't know, they seem, like, really weird. You know, like, with Stephen Amell, he's got some discernible talent, you know, combat in what he does. But, you know, an actor that's not known for combat, I don't think it's it's a wise move. Well, it all depends how it's done, and this is definitely not the way. As Bischoff has already gone to attack David Arquette as the match is starting. Of course, like you said, the first man to get the pin, DDP and Jeff Jarrett on the outside. So, Eric Bischoff, in this last, like, couple of years with WCW, he was grey. But when he joined WWF, he was brunette. Yeah, they wanted him to go back to the way he was, I suppose, like Mysterio with the mask. Pretend, you know, go back to when WCW was good, as opposed to the kind of dying days of it. As Kimberly has now been uh, given a referee, of course, she betrayed DDP after Chris Canyon betrayed DDP and after lots of other betrayals by DDP. has been betrayed a lot. In the so, early 2000s in WSW. So is this an early predecessor to Lita because she's got a thong sticking out the back of her leather trousers? No, she's just become a whore, really, under ah. Bischoff's stewardship. Oh, so because the thong's sticking out, you know that she's a whore? Yes, that's basically saying, and now going to go for the cover, but won't count the pin. DDP saying, what you're doing? And I'm glad it's just Jeff Jarrett and Paige really resting this one because, of course, Arquette and Bischoff aren't trade professionals. And Jeff Jarrett now get caught the sunset flip. And look how quick Kimberly counting. Well, she was on her knees very quickly for Jeff Jarrett. She was. Well, she got down. But now Jeff Jarrett up. DDT. I mean, at least Jeff Jarrett got his wish of becoming a world champion once the company died. You know, like, yeah, we'll switch you. You know, you're not Intercontinental. What would you rather be? An Intercontinental champion in, like, WWF? Or world champion in a company like WCW? Um, well, if in world company, in world championship company, kind of, you're with the likes of David Arquette, <laughs> then uh, I'd rather be a fucking a jobber on Sunday Nitro, uh, or on not Sunday Nitro on um Saturday night main event or something, wrestling Mojo Rawley and EC3. Bischoff is in now with the kicks, and the fans are chanting DDP, the ones that are still there. Bischoff gets some offense and then tags in Jarrett. Arquette nowhere to be seen, but of course the odds against the faces. I'll be surprised no one's watching Thunder at uh, 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 Nitro, let alone fucking Thunder at this point. Huh. <laughs> I think their viewers are the people that's in attendance. Mm. But it's history repeating again. We're given too many shows. You no, know, Nitro is three hours at this point, or switched back to two hours at this point, sorry. And then Thunder, of course, two hours. In the end, they just filmed Thunder after Nitro, so the fans paying for one show got to sit down through five hours of this. Uh oh. And David Arquette has managed to limp his way back to the ringside. Well, DDP in trouble and uh, the man's here. Well, now we get a meeting of the minds between uh, Jeff Jarrett and Eric Bischoff. Oh, he went for the diamond cut, but Kimberly got caught. DDP saved himself. And a big kiss to a woman who doesn't want the kiss. No, Arquette with a spear to Bischoff. Going for the covers, Jarrett onto Page. New referee in. One... Two, three. So let me get this right. Yeah, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but the referee called right past Jeff Jarrett's pin on DDP to count 
David Arquette's pin on Eric Bischoff. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Well, I doubt. Referee counts. The, the drinks and popcorn gets thrown in. And David Arquette is a world heavyweight champion. WWE. Many people say this is the night WWE died. It wasn't. It was already dead beforehand. But Arquette winning the title was that point. That's why it's number one on our list. I mean, you know, as as far as it goes, this is a title that a lot of prestigious wrestlers have held. But Drew McIntyre hasn't. See, I mean, David Arquette, an actor, you know, someone who's famous for his star, managed to hold a world heavyweight title. And yes. it is recognised. It is. He, he is recognised as a title reign, yes. But... So has Vincent Mann. So have other people that aren't worth it. People like Randy Orton. So, you know, we'll see on this. But this is why the most ridiculous is because it's a company making a choice that just doesn't... K-Fed beat John Cena, yes. But the WWE title wasn't on the line. You fear for WWE when... Especially when you're using... Like, not Kane Velasquez and Tyson Fury's son, but other celebrities that maybe could have a point. Look at the shit thrown into the ring. Look at the anger of the crowd. And this is your moment... And this is where a company could go wrong. A WWF, a WWE even, sorry, at this moment in time. They've got to be careful. It doesn't alienate the audience, especially when there is an alternative out there. But David Arquette winning the title. God. Absolutely, yeah. Well, what about during his time as champion, Dan? Well, James, during his time as champion, Arquette was mostly used as comic relief. He only appeared on two shows as champion. The May 1st Nitro and the May 7th Slambury pay-per-view. During the former, a vignette was shown filmed on the set of Arquette's film 3,000 Miles to Graceland, which also featured his wife, Courtney Cox, and their co-star, Kurt Russell. In the vignette, Cox informs Russell that Arquette is WCW World Heavyweight Champion, causing Russell to laugh and walk off, and Arquette to chase after him with a steel... In another portion of the show, Arquette was seen backstage trembling in fear and attempting to give back the championship belt. However, he did successfully defend the title against Tank Abbott with help from Paige. <laughs> Tank Abbott. Arquette held the title for 12 days until the Slam Brew paid for you. So he's held the title longer than Christian did. Until the Slam Brew paid for you on May 7th, 2000, when he was booked to defend the championship against Jarrett and Paige in the triple cage match, the same match featured in the climax of Ready to Rumble. In the end, he turned on Paige and gave the victory to Jarrett. After Slambury, Arquette cut a promo on the May 8th episode of Nitro, explaining that his entire friendship with Paige and title run was a swerve. Paige subsequently ran down to the wing and hit him with a diamond cutter. Arquette made one final appearance with WCW on the New Blood Rising pay-per-view on August 13th when he interfered in a match between Buff Bagwell and... Arquette was totally against becoming a WCW World Heroic Champion, believing that fans like himself would detest a non-wrestler winning the title. He was right. But Dan's mate, Twitter friend, Vince Russo, who was a head book for WCW at the time, insisted that Arquette became the champion, and it would be good for the company and for the publicity that Arquette reluctantly agreed to the angle. I loved pro wrestling since growing up, Arquette recalled. I saw Andre the Giant and Hulk Hogan back at the sports arena. We'd go to all the road shows growing up, so I always loved it. And then Ready to Rumble happened. It was just a chance for me to sort of tap into something I loved as a kid and sort of tap into the crazy fan that I was. And then I got to meet all my heroes. I got to travel with Hulk Hogan, Sting, DDP and get to know all the guys. And in promoting the movie, they had me go on the road and I ended up the champ. I don't know what happened, but it happened. Well, also, during the interview, Arquette shared that he started praying for pro wrestling recently because people gave him so much grief for his failed world title run in WCW. 
I never really got the opportunity to wrestle, so just 18 years later, after a lot of people gave me grief, I was like, I want to do it right. So I've been training with Peter Avalon, a great wrestler and trainer. Arquette continued, I'm getting back into pro wrestling 18 years later. I just had my first match, it was amazing, against RJ City. I got my butt kicked, but it's alright, it was good. It was a good match at Championship Wrestling from Hollywood. Well, apparently Dan's friend, Twitter friend Vince Russo, who crowned Arquette WCW champion, thought the world title reign would have worked out differently because Arquette was a true fan. I actually recently talked to Vince Russo on his podcast, the seventh best podcast going. Arquette remembered, and then he explained to me, he said that part of the reason he thought it would be all right, because when I first got there, I was running around. I did something great with Jeff Jarrett, and I had his guitar, and I went around all the wrestlers and had them sign it. I was just a fan. And he was like, and that was just part of the reason I was different. I wasn't just an actor. I was truly a fan of wrestling. So that's kind of the idea behind it. Okay. No, that he thought being WCW World Heavyweight Champion was a mistake, but he was talked into it. Yeah, I said I didn't think it was a good idea, Arquette admitted. But then after a few minutes, I thought it would be fun to, just to travel and get a little taste of business. So, yeah. Well, all the money he made during his WCW tenure was donated to the family's own heart. Brian Pillman... And, of course, Darren Drozdoff, all who suffered, well, Owen Hart, of course, the horrible accident. Brian Pillman, of course, died. Darren Drozdoff is complegic after an in-ring accident. And after WWE purchased WSW, our catch championship run was listed as the top reason for the failure of Nitro in a list published by the W magazine. And, of course, the WNR's most ridiculous moment. So, Dan, what do you think of that most ridiculous list there, then? Absolutely ridiculous. There are some classic moments in there. Some of them, you know, they were entertaining, yet still ridiculous. But David Arquette, I mean, kind of put him as a top reason for the failure of Nitro. But I don't think he helped the cause. No, I don't think without doubt, you know. But I think if we look back on the list, I think it's a good one. I think it does beat the previous one. And let's hope we don't take another 149 episodes to do the next. If you're going to pick your own personal favourite out of the list, which one would it be? Um, mine would have to be a Bushi wrestling in a blow-up doll. Yeah, I think that was a really good match, actually. That was absolutely, yeah. <laughs> you know, like... As I said during it, it was better than any Enzo Amore match I've ever seen. Not that that's much of a compliment in itself. No, but I like the fun of uh, Kona Shikara as well and uh, DDT. Something a little bit different, like I said. A true, when people talk about a true alternative to a WWE product, that is what they're bringing. And I think it's good to shine it on them and not just do a WWE and WWE list, even though they have had failures and stuff to laugh at, but to, to have a, a, a thing. And, and this is what he said, to have fun. If we've had fun whilst we're doing this list, hasn't it? And, and I think that's what it's about. Absolutely, yeah, and I've had a lot of fun with this. Right, so the next episode is our British special slash TLC 2019. We'll be talking about British wrestling. We're actually going to a British wrestling event, IPW's Undisputed Free. And, of course, meeting Joe Ryan, who's appeared on this list. So we'll give you all of that, plus a lot more. But until then, don't forget you can follow us on Twitter, at WWNetReview, or... At Vince McDan, WWE. I'm at Joe underscore Rose. Of course, all the Google platforms, send us an email, podcast at gmail.com, or follow us on Instagram, the WNR Podcast. We're on Facebook... Yes, Facebook, come and find our page and give us a like with a WWE Network Review podcast. That's going to be changing very soon. Or you can come and find me and add me as a friend. I am Vince McDan. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, the WNR Podcast. Got the latest clips on there. Podcasts at the same time on YouTube. It's other places like SoundCloud. On your phone. Spreaker Radio. We've got our live shows. Stitch Radio and iTunes. We can download, subscribe, rate and review there. But like I say, up next it is the British Special Slash TLC. But until then... I've been James Rowlands, and as always, I was joined by Dan White. Thanks for listening, everybody, and bye. Bye.